Time for your uh, sermon again, Jake. Hmm. There was a time when Nick and Eric here and I, we worried about recording length. We did a whole mess of editing and splices. We all hated cutting a lot of it. But Eric sort of became an armchair editor. No payment or anything. Just tedious hours and carpal tunnel. Do you know the letter Einstein wrote to his dear friend Michaela Angelo Besso? No, that's all right. Now he has departed this strange world a little ahead of me. This means nothing. People like us who believe in physics know that the distinction between past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. Time is a lie. You only perceive this podcast to be three hours long, when in truth, it is the infinite. Join us as we take the S-pill and swim in the frozen river of time and take a deep dive into Synchronic, the mind-bending, time-shattering latest from podcast heroes Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. Well, hello, and welcome back to another edition of the Scary Stuff Podcast. Today, we are doing one of our our most anticipated bonus episodes as we finally gotten our rotten little fingers on Blu-ray copies of Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead's latest, Synchronic. We waited so long! (laughs) (laughs) I remember scouring, scouring the web for any, any drive-in theaters that had this movie. I'm so happy. We We were ready to do some driving. For this one, uh, and it never never got a chance, but finally it came out on VOD, and I, I bought it on that, and then they didn't, so we had to wait until the Blu-rays came out, and then they finally fucking watched this movie. So uh, anyway, so I'm I'm Jacob, one of your hosts. I'm with me tonight are Nick. How you doing tonight? And Eric. Pretty sure rather than introducing us as the Scary Stuff Podcast, we should just say it's the Rustic Films Propaganda Podcast at this point, <laughs> just, as the opening indicated. So when Eric and I were talking about recording this the other day, I said, you know, are you ready to do it? I said, look, I am ready to give this movie a three-hour sloppy blowjob. Yes, oh I was God. ready to record for this. <laughs> Oculus uh, episode that we just put out clocked in at just under two hours, 45 minutes. So let's see how long we go on Synchronic. Well, you got to make a game of it. So you, you see how many you can do in three hours, and then you try and beat that record. <laughs> Look, I, in all seriousness, I, I'll just say right up front, and you're going to be able to detect it fairly quickly. I fucking loved this movie. I loved it. I adored it when I first saw it. I've watched it three times since. I watched the commentary, all the extras. I mean, you can tell from our, our first Benson and Moorhead episode how much we appreciate these guys and we like what they do. And Synchronic is just more evidence of how good they are and... I don't. I don't even. Wouldn't even say they're at their peak of their powers because it still feels like they're in the infancy of what's going to be, you know, an incredible career if somebody finally gives them money. <laughs> they got more money for this one. We don't know how much, but it was definitely more money. So it was definitely a bump. Yeah, that's one of the interesting elements of this is seeing this movie as kind of a next step. And after this, they're getting that Marvel money. Yes, because yeah. now they've just recently announced they're going to be working on the new Moon Knight show. They'll be directing some of the episodes of that. Now it's not Marvel feature money, but it's Marvel on Disney Plus money, which, based on WandaVision, is still a good amount of money. I'm excited. 
it seems like it's a good and look i could give a shit about moon knight but i am rip shit and ready to go for this <laughs> oh i am so excited for that show look, like, oscar isaac is playing him he's playing mark Spector, right okay so just real quick i have enjoyed comics but i i really very much the mainstream characters uh why don't you give me and the, and the folks at home a quick update on who moon knight is you know batman i know batman he's marvel's version that sounds sad but with moons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, initially he was he was very much a Batman parallel. And then over time, his character's been kind of fluid. And lately they've really pushed a mental health angle with him. So his whole thing is he has the, the moon element of him is his connection with the deity Khonshu, the moon deity. Yeah, they mixed in some Hawkman originally too. Yeah, a little bit of Hawkman. And they've pushed that element. Ever since, so they rebooted the book mid in the early 2000s, Charlie Houston, who's, uh, folks probably know he's written a lot of crime horror novels, came on, wrote the book, and they were pushing this, is Moon Knight actually supernaturally connected, or is he just nuts? Does he have, like, multiple personality syndrome? So that whole thing equating the moon with lunacy, you know, and they've been kind of pushing that angle. So I was excited even before fucking Benson and Moorhead are now since just went through the roof at that point. Well, yeah. You know, if that, that kind of idea with uh, Benson and Moorhead pushing it, I have uh, high hopes. We'll see what they get. And again, Oscar Isaac is in it and he's never in anything. All right. He's almost never in anything. Bad. <laughs> Good catch. <laughs> <laughs> Realized halfway through that sentence that I was about to speak a lie. Uh, we won't get into what we're referring to, but y'all, y'all know. You know, go back, listen to episode two and you'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, uh, these guys are, I mean, they're, they're functionally our avatars. You know, half the reason we started the pod was because of how much we love their movies. And we, we talked to it, go back and listen to our episode eight on them. And you'll give us sort of the full background and the stories about, you know, us getting together and seeing bone storm originally, and then jumping into their movies and how much we've enjoyed them. And, I, I will admit I was a little trepidatious going into Synchronic because of how much I loved Spring and Endless and Resolution and everything that they, I've seen them do. You know, it's one of those things like, all right, they got a little bit of money. There's some stars in these. It's the fucking. Wow, my brain just stopped. What's the porn movie <laughs> he was in? Wait, who was it? Jimmy Dornan? Fifty Shades. Okay. Fifty, 50 Shades. shades. <laughs> I was like, Justin Benson and Aaron Morgan's I just, I couldn't get there. It was my brain just seized. Yeah, he, you know, it's got the guy from Fifty Shades of Grey and... Hashtag not my Christian. You know, Anthony Mackie, who's <laughs> awesome, but he's also, at this point, a big star. In fact, he had a Super Bowl ad. We're recording this the night of the Super Bowl, and he had a Super Bowl ad tonight for Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So, you know, I was a little trepidatious. Like, is this when... They start getting notes. And is this when they start getting hemmed in a little bit by the system? Well, the answer is no. It's just, it's a terrific movie. I was, the first time I watched it, I was more relieved than anything else. You know, like, okay, still got it. And then the second time I watched it, it was like, wait a minute, this is fucking terrific. (laughs) And by the fourth time, it's, yeah, it's right up there with their other films. I just, I loved it. It's been interesting because even we haven't talked about this at all. Like no, I mentioned how much I like the Tarek, but we have, we have We've gone out of our way not to. So I don't know if they liked it. So this might be our shortest pod. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's funny because even though we haven't really talked about the movie in, in chat or anything leading up to this, 
I've been thinking about them a lot lately. Just, I mean, I've been watching Synchronic several times doing prep for this episode. Um, I also watched the Netflix documentary, My Octopus Teacher, which has kind of been all the rage, which about the, the guy who's a diver who goes diving in the same spot. I believe it's in South Africa. And he starts developing this rapport with an octopus he sees. And it chronicles like 365 days of him going out and swimming and, and interacting with this octopus. It's really <laughs> gorgeous footage. Really, I read about it on the internet. It was getting a lot of good reviews. To me, it's a horror movie because all after seeing eight, all I could think is that octopus just wants the missing genome so it can go tell its friends. <laughs> so all I was thinking during this really lovely documentary was, oh, that fucking octopus is just <laughs> waiting to get that DNA. And then also, I do need to mention, so we did end up pushing back episode 14, which was going to come out this month. We ended up pushing that back a little bit. So we're still technically in between 13 and 14. This is still technically in the wrestling episode fallout. So we're going to have a 30-minute discussion about what Benson and Moorhead's tag team finisher was going to be and whether or not <laughs> Smiling Dave, God bless him, Smiling Dave Lawson, whether or not he would be better as a manager or do they want to form Team Rustic and be like a trio, like the fabulous Freebirds? Oh, definitely a trio. Yeah, I, we do know from our interview with Dave Lawson back in our She Dies Tomorrow bonus episode that their fans have run the jewels. All their moves could be named after tracks from Run the Jewels 4. Because you have to admit, <laughs> Holy Kalamafuck is an amazing name for a tag finisher. That would be incredible. <laughs> the ground below is their entrance music. You know, they come out to the ring and says, and hailing from Lund. <laughs> I have to admit, now I want to hear, you know, one of these these wrestling announcers get really excited and, try, you know, say, and the rustic team finishes him with the Holy Kalamafuck. <laughs> <laughs> be the most protected finisher since the 3d which came up in our ouija episode i made a reference to the, uh, the deadly decapitation device hey coming full circle oh man so anyway so did you guys like it yes i did i really really liked it i wouldn't put it ahead of uh the previous movies they did no but i i really really liked it i don't think yeah i think the, the previous movies are, are are higher in my account but i did really enjoy it yeah it's oh jake's leaving <laughs> Well, I, no, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of specifically ranking them, but I, hmm, that's tough. Well, Bone Storm's still number one. <laughs> well, <laughs> of course. Yeah, I, I don't know how I would rank it because my favorite is almost always the one I just watched. I've probably watched Endless the most, so that's probably still number one for me. I best, I'm only half joking with the Bone Storm because Bone Storm is one of those things where it's lightning in a bottle. You know, it's it's not fair, but your experience of watching it is so intrinsically tied to your opinion of it. It's like I will remember where I was when we saw Bone Storm together. <laughs> but no, Spring is still number one for me, mm. and my response to this would be: it's kind of hard to judge because of kind of the nature of the premise and how they reworked it structurally. So I'll just mention up front and it's something they mentioned in the commentary as well. I read the script for this and the script was originally written pretty much linearly chronologically. Yep. So all the sequences that are out of place in the finished film, where it's kind of jumping around a little bit, aside from folks literally jumping around like through multiple decades, it was originally told pretty much linearly and the restructuring of it, I think is interesting. I was just watching it again. I'm kind of weighing back and forth on the benefits versus things I think it kind of detracted from. But the main thing I took away from it was just, again, just being so happy at how well 
they kind of made this leap like you were talking about, which is they don't have this isn't Marvel money, but this is more money and, you know, higher profile actors and, and you know, a little more, quote unquote, razzle dazzle to this movie. And they did that element of it so well. So that I was really happy for. And it, it certainly gives you, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, they're going to fucking crush it with Moon Knight. So, OK, just thinking about it, I'm going to say endless synchronic resolution spring for me. I think that's how I would rank him. That'll probably change. But right now, that's how I would rank him. I really like this movie. Like, I really, really like this movie. I think it's Spring Resolution Endless, this movie, for me. <laughs> I'm going to add, like, some reverb and bass to that. <laughs> no, I mean, that that's fine. It's, you know, what are your four favorite flavors of ice cream? Well, right, exactly. Right, yeah, absolutely. It's still ice absolutely. cream, you know? It's Yes. Yeah, and I'm just getting hung up because on I feel the biggest hiccup I had with the film is I think I overhyped my expectations so it's very much a me problem because it's beautifully shot well executed great cast that works out because most of my problems are nick problems (laughs) (laughs) but the uh all the the science fiction parts it's i think i overhyped it and it got it ended up feeling less to me than what i was hoping for and expecting and that took away a tiny bit and there was a few little plot holes that stuck in my crawl don't get me wrong i love the movie i had a really great time i i watched it like three times I had a great time watching it but um there are certain things that bring it down in the rankings between all four yeah i'm literally in a weird position right now because i i just finished watching it with the script uh, about an hour before we're recording this and so i'm sitting there and just kind of weighing a lot of things in my head about the structure of it because the structure of it's it's really fascinating the way they shifted these scenes around also makes a pain in the ass to read when you've just got the pdf doc and you have to keep bouncing back and forth because it's, it's <laughs> like oh shit now i gotta scroll back up like 10 pages to see how this scene compares but i will have to say there's not a lot missing from the movie there's bits and pieces missing from it not a ton of significance i didn't give a shit it could have been word for word line for line in the script exactly as the finished film I just wanted to read Justin Benson's stage directions Ah, because they're fucking amazing from what I saw in the script for spring. And they were exactly what I hoped they'd be. And we'll read some of them as we go. Nice. See, now I'll say for me, I was kind of the opposite of Nick. Like I said, I went into this a little trepidatious, a little bit worried about it. And the movie hit me square in the middle age malaise-ness, you know? So I like a lot of what the movie is about and they're talking about and the, you know, the feelings of stuck and everything. It just, it, hit on such a deeply personal level that it, it I understood almost everything they were trying to say. And I'm like, well, this is a little too real guys, <laughs> <laughs> but also, you know, we're recording this during the COVID year. So that feeling of stuck and bottled up in time is obviously very much pervasive. It's very much at the forefront of all of our minds. Well, not all of ours. If it was the forefront of all of our minds, we wouldn't have the problem. <laughs> uh, something they mentioned on the commentary, in a way. They talk, <laughs> the fact that smallpox, is, which is an element that was kind of excised from the finished film, was more of a thing in the original script. But it's like, hey, that's a legitimate fucking concern now. Well, I, and they, they talk. I mean, there's messages within this beyond that. A lot of it has right, to right, do right. with how the past is perceived and all of that stuff is important. But it's impossible to also talk about this movie without talking about COVID because of the release. Mm-hmm. And it had such a, a weird. So now this movie originally came out, I want to say in 2019. October? 
It was 2019 at the Toronto International Film Festival. It was the first showing, yeah. Yes. It was the first show, but it, it was released in theaters. I forget it was of October. It or was November. October. It was late October, if I remember yeah. correctly. Mid late October. Didn't really matter because, much like, you know. You'd think we'd remember because Nick and I put in PTO for that shit and <laughs> found out it's not nope. playing fucking anywhere near here. <laughs> like scrolling up on Google Maps and back, 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 and like expanding the radius by 50 Could miles. Not find still it. fucking nothing. We had plenty of drive ins around here. No one was showing it. Nope. And all the theaters around here, we looked into doing a private screening reached out to all the local theaters like can you do a private screening of this and they said yeah well nope can't do that you're welcome to come in and watch you know fucking something else but nope no synchronic well shit but i mean and the creators themselves said look don't go to theaters to see this because it's not safe yep. and it shouldn't it, sh- it, sh- it simply should not have had a theatrical release nope it sucks because i you know would have loved to have seen this in the theater and i hope someday that will still be possible but it should have been released on VOD back in October, November to make more money that way. And and the creator said as much. And it really sucks that they had to come out and say, look, don't go see our movie. Because what an impossible, awful position yep. to put people in. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know the politics behind it. I don't know what the whole deal was, you know, on the distributor side. It just it's not it wasn't right. And it sucks that we're doing we're recording this in February. When it came out in October, we just couldn't see it anywhere. And look, like you're saying, I would have driven a long way to go see this at a drive-in, but I, I can't go see it in the theater. I'm high risk. Yeah, same. And it's, you know, for something that we had been look, so looking forward to, I, I would list this in terms of entertainment and enjoyment and things that I love. It, this was a big disappointment in the last year that this kind of went down the way it did. But I'll say this. Having finally got to see it in January when it was released on VOD and then getting the Blu-ray and getting to listen to like the director's commentary, it was everything I had hoped for. So yeah, we had to wait a couple more months and it sucks and it was a bad position for everybody. But in the end, this is such a good movie and they are such talented creators that it was worth the wait. I'll throw that out there. Yeah, Agreed. absolutely. And you know, for a movie that was conceived originally in a bagel shop, in Toronto, <laughs> I think that the end of the story for this particular movie could only ever be a little bit weird and a little bit out of the uh, the realm of normal. But here we are. We're finally getting to record it and finally get to talk about it. Yay! Yeah, so before we dig into it, just one thing to toss out real quick is, obviously, if you've listened to older episodes, we do full spoilers. But since this is a more recent movie, just fair warning, full spoiler warning up front that we're going to be spoiling stuff and we're probably going to have to spoil stuff early. Yes. Again, by nature of the restructuring of the movie and the concept. So if you have any interest, stop now. So just, you know, look, if you're remotely interested, go see it. And that it's really that simple. And if you think about it, we've already spoiled it for people because the past is a frozen river. Our song is already on the record. It's just we're not at the needle there yet. Yeah, well, we're going to get into the checklist of how this movie was made for Jake as we go through it. Yep. <laughs> and, yep. Because that's one of them. <laughs> so I have, a, I have a couple quotes, and I'm thinking before we get into it would be the time. So one of the things about this movie is this is set in New Orleans, mm-hmm. and it's very much a movie of place. What I mean by that is this is a movie that is almost as much about the place as it is the people. The place is very much a character in this. Yes, absolutely. And again, in our COVID year here, where we can't go anywhere, 
you know, being able to watch something that so fully inhabits a place that I would like to have gone. It's a little extra rewarding, I think, in this current time period. But it's also I love that kind of movie where it just fully inhabits its locale. And I was interested and kind of went looking for why they picked New Orleans, because everything else, well, not everything else, Italy and then everything else has been in Southern California, you know, where the red flower grows. So this was kind of a different thing for them, certainly shooting on location in a city. So I, I found a Thrillist interview where they talked about that a little bit. And the question was, why did you pick New Orleans for the setting? Because I, I had been curious that like when they wrote it, did they write it with New Orleans in mind? Or did New Orleans kind of happen because tax breaks or something like that? Tax yeah. breaks or something like that. Uh, so anyway, so Thrillist asked, why did you pick New Orleans for the setting? And Moorhead answers, there were two reasons. One is thematic and one is ridiculous. The first one is we already had this idea of being able to go back to different layers of time. There's another word I guess we could use that are all sitting on top of each other and moving like this, and you can kind of go down on different layers. So we thought, what place in the United States? It probably would have to be the United States because that's most likely where these designer synthetic analogs are distributed. That's referencing the drug itself. What has the most difference visually and also socially different layers to it? We landed on New Orleans. It has both Spanish and French colonialism, as well as Katrina. It has jazz culture. It has racial tension. It has an enormous religious background in ways that other cities don't. I mean, geez, go back 100 years in L.A., and it's just a bunch of farms. It's more than that, but you get the idea. And you know you go back in 100 years in New York, and it looks like New York. So we landed on New Orleans for that reason. We can explore different facets of how the past can be an antagonist because the layers are so completely different. It's like an oil painting that's been painted over. And then the other reason is we genuinely thought, where do we want to shoot? Where's fun? Where's good living? Where do you think if this is going to require enticing our collaborators to come work for us, where would they want to live? East County, San Diego, where we shot Resolution and the Endless, you know, it's fine, but it's a lot easier to tell somebody who's shooting in Italy. So the thematic pieces of it dovetail very nicely with the fact that New Orleans is a filmmaking hub and it's a wonderful city to live in. And I just thought that was a cool quote because, you know. <laughs> It's just fun, but they wanted to shoot because it was a cool city. And it makes sense with the, the overall themes of the, the movie and the way that jump around in time to actually look different. Because he's right about New York. Yeah, things would look different, but it's still recognizably New York 100 years ago. Yeah, it, the setting of this ended up being pitch perfect. He was in New Orleans. Absolutely. And I guess Anthony Mackie is from there. Yes. So that worked out. That's interesting to know because I was curious going in if it, there was a tax breaks element to it because... and. Cutting in a little bit, something Nick's probably about to go over, but one of the production companies on this is Patriot Pictures, yep. who I hadn't heard of before seeing this, but on the DVD for Synchronic, they advertised the hell out of Cutthroat City, the new movie by the RZA. <laughs> yep. And so I saw that trailer. It's funny. I never saw the trailer for Synchronic. I actively avoided it because I, I wanted to go in as cold as possible. But then I put in the movie Synchronic once I get it in my hands, and I see the trailer for Cutthroat City like four times going through the Blu-ray. So I told my roommate the other night, you want to watch Cutthroat City? <laughs> and it's about a robbery in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. So it's also very intrinsically tied to New Orleans. So I, I don't know if it's a thing with the production company, part of their location. That's how they ended up getting involved 
after the script was written for New Orleans. The other thing that company's working on is Prisoners of the fucking Ghostland, the Nick Cage <laughs> Sonocean movie, which I cannot fucking wait for. We're definitely going to be doing a Nick Cage episode coming up, folks. Yeah. Spoilers. <laughs> Hot spoilers? Does it count as a spoiler? If we... we gave the spoiler, spoiler. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the spoiler warning was not just for Synchronic. It was a spoiler warning. We can spoil any movie we want. <laughs> you were warned. He was dead the whole time. <laughs> well, as we've discussed, this is a Benson and Moorhead film. They've worked on Resolution Spring the Endless. They directed and edited this film. Uh, this film is just written by Justin Benson, who's also written things like Bone Storm from VHS. Loved it. The cinematography on this was done by Aaron Moorhead. Uh, he, you can see more of his work on Straight Out of Oz, which I really enjoyed watching. The music is by Jimmy Laval. Album Leaf. And I love it. I love it so much. He makes new instruments of like to do this. It's fantastic. Yes. They show one of them in the making yes, of it. It's, neat. it's nifty as hell. We mentioned back in episode eight what a value the Blu-rays are for all these movies. And, and that holds true for Synchronic. But yeah, if, if you're a music fan or a score fanatic, Watch the behind-the-scenes featurettes of all of them just to see Jimmy Laval and the unconventional methods he uses to create sounds. Because he does a lot of it in Synchronic, but he's done it to a degree for all of them. And it's fascinating to watch. I love him greatly. My fourth note on this movie is about Jimmy Laval's score. We'll get to that here <laughs> in a little bit. But Jimmy Laval, you can also see more of his work on Lovecraft Country, After Midnight, and uh, The O.C. We, uh... As we listen, <laughs> anytime I can make Jake's head tilt is a good day for me. <laughs> I realize you can't see that listening to a pod, but that he, you know, the first two of those. Oh yeah, yeah. What? <laughs> he worked on the OC, which yeah, I watched that's all fine. of. I, I just wasn't ready for that. I don't know the name of the song, but it was an album leaf track that was used on a on an episode at some point. Yeah. Yep. This is uh, produced by a, a number of entities, uh, the first being XYZ Films, who have done a lot of stuff I love, so I'm going to rant real quick. They worked on She Dies Tomorrow, Mandy, Baskin, Anna and the Apocalypse, Under the Shadow, The Invitation, Tusk, Life After Beth, and Holidays. Wow. Yeah. I like a lot of those. I know. I, I There's like a I duo to... in there you decidedly <laughs> did not like. <laughs> All I'm saying is Mandy and Baskin back-to-back was a little bit much for a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, Nick didn't just read those back-to-back. We watched those back-to-back. <laughs> How's that for serendipity? On a Sunday afternoon. Again, that's an important <laughs> This is also produced by Patriot Pictures, who worked on Men of Courage, Tokarev, and Running with the Devil. All three starring Nick Cage. Yep. Uh, also, they worked <laughs> it's also, of course, produced by Rustic Films. Yay! Yay! Love you, Dave Lawson Jr. Which, of course, did She Dies Tomorrow and After Midnight. And this is, uh, at least my copy was distributed by WellGo USA Entertainment, who are also distributing Possessor, Peninsula, and Rigor Mortis. Hey! Yay! Yeah. I, I don't know the full history of them, but when I hear WellGo USA, the first thing that comes into mind is East Asian imports, because yep, there was a, a lot, lot of Chinese and Korean movies that they imported. So that's how I first heard their name. So I don't know how they got their start initially, but the, when I still hear, well, go USA, that's the first thing I think of. We're going to get to rigor mortis at some point on this podcast. Damn it. Probably possessor too. But yeah, there's, this is and circling back to the crew thing you mentioned. Yeah. It's a lot of repeats from the other recent Benson and Moorhead collaborations. We got Ariel Vita back. 
as the production designer, but she's also worked on some other stuff in the interim. She worked on She Dies Tomorrow, Arch Enemy, which I'm really excited to watch. I haven't gotten to it yet. Uh, the Short Separation, which was done by the amazing Rebecca McKendry. So if you're not subbing to her Patreon and listen to her pod, do that. Laura Cristina Ortiz did the costuming. She also worked on Separation. She did the costuming for The Wretched. And then there's the editors, which are Justin Benson, Aaron Orhead, but we'd be remiss if we didn't mention Michael Felker again. Oh, right. Yes. Subject of his own uh, <laughs> running joke on the Blu-ray for The Endless. Felker. <laughs> and one other quick note. So all these production companies that Nick just read off, we see their production company logos at the start of the movie as the sound of storms plays overhead. But then we get the Benson and Moorhead title card. Now we established in the Oculus episode that Mike Flanagan reigns over Ario Nero Bold as the font. Benson and Moorhead have apparently laid their claims as the kings of Perpetua Roman. So that's the font. <laughs> John Carpenter's got Albertus. Mike Flanagan's got Ario Nero Bold. And Benson and Moorhead have got Perpetua Roman. So... <laughs> Come on, where else are you getting font content in horror <laughs> podcasts, folks? Leave us a review, goddammit. <laughs> so right off the bat, this movie starts with a scene of two hands interlocked and then coming apart. And I feel this is very indicative of the rest of the film. This is why it's really hard not to talk about the rest of the movie without spoilers. It's just... <laughs> Brilliant and beautiful because you know, at the heart of it, all of the mechanics aside, all of the specifics aside, this movie is really about family and about the relationships we have with each other and the ones we don't have and wish we did and we might be envious of others. I, I feel that the, the crux of the film is about this one family that is clearly in a schism and about bringing it back together. Yeah. And it's again, so spoilers, we, we warned you. The opening shot of this mirrors the end of the movie. And another running element of this movie, in addition to what Nick just mentioned, is the concept of everything being connected and the concept of everything kind of being, you know, bound together. The movie ends up kind of being a Mobius strip in that respect, visually. Yep. And not only is it this element of a, of a shot of hands that are initially together and then drifting apart, but it's also specifically begins out of focus and then comes into focus. And your interpretation of the focus element is going to color how you perceive the final shot of the movie. Mm -hmm. Does something come into focus or does something go out of focus at the very end? And we'll get to that later. But yeah, it's a nice bit of symmetry in synchronic, mm. which then leads to pills in hand. And we see there's this couple that are taking this drug that has a little S on it. The man is Travis, played by Shane Brady. Shane from, Brady! Yay, from Shane The Endless, Brady. Dr. Sleep in Spring. And a pocket fish. Yes. <laughs> yes, he was. Shane Brady has made quite a few appearances on this podcast. Yeah. I yeah. appreciate him. Not even episode eight. He was in Dr. Sleep back in episode yep. four. Yeah. And the woman is Leah, played by Betsy Holt from Puppet Master Littlest Reich. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Which we'll get to at some point. I haven't seen it yet. I've brought it up like three times now. We have to do it at some point. I've been itching for that one. Have to is a strong word. <laughs> Technically two strong words. <laughs> now, I'm going to say right at the bat, and I'm probably going to be delving into this more as time goes on. I had a lot of props with this one scene. So he leaves the room from the second floor to go up to the seventh floor for ice? Yeah. Yeah? <laughs> um, 
I forget what button he hit for ice or whether or not he was. No, he was on the seventh floor. No, he's he on the going second going up. up. Oh, that's right. He was on the second. He starts on the. So they're on the second ended. floor. One or the other. He ends on the. Yeah, he's on the seventh because it's. Yep. They mentioned a seven story drop here coming up. It's a hotel where they're they start out in a double bed in the middle of the room with a high back. Now, let me ask you this. How many hotels have you been in that A, had a single double bed in a room? And B, had a high back on the bed itself. Script specifies it's a Holiday Inn. (laughs) So there we go. It's a real hotel. They talk about it being a real hotel. So all I'm saying is this hotel, already weird. So if he's got to go up to the seventh floor for ice, doesn't bother me. He's also high as fuck. And I can say very specifically that Nick and I have been, let's say, not in the perfect frame of mind, wandering around hotels at night. No, I just saying... It's uh, not unrealistic based on all, our lives. All I'm saying is... Granted, we never traveled in time, but we could have. I don't know. Some of those nights are a little fuzzy. He's not that high yet. He's not that high on Synchronic yet. <laughs> yeah. Something they mentioned in the commentary is this was not originally the opening scene. Right. This originally happened like close to a third of the way into the movie because everything was linear. So they moved it forward so the opening would have more punch. And which I think it was a good move. Yeah, I, well, again, I think a lot of the, the restructuring of this is I'm, I'm still kind of settling my feelings on what works better and, and what necessarily doesn't. But for this opening, when it arrives in the script, this sequence is intercut with the Anthony Mackie character getting his first MRI. And it cuts back and forth, and it's noting kind of the hum of the MRI machine is humming over this couple as they're in the hotel room. The script specifies that they drop the synchronic tablet and they sit there and they're kind of waiting for it to kick in and it never does. And they kind of look disappointed. And so that's when he goes out to get ice. So they cut the bit of them where it, the way it's edited in the finished film, it doesn't look like there's a lot of time. It looks like he drops the pill, gets up with a smile, grabs the ice bucket and walks out. So I had the same thought initially. It was like, wait, he's like, oh man, that drug's about to kick. I got to get to the ice machine fast. <laughs> Cause nothing's better than tripping balls at the ice machine. <laughs> Just... <laughs> There's also the fact he's a, uh, I think he's a bit old for the effects that happen with this. I, I'm fairly certain, uh, so spoilers, jumping ahead. I I, I, I feel oh, wow. Shane Brady's old Nick's enough to Nick's about to make a, sure Shane Brady never comes on the pod. <laughs> I feel he's probably old enough for a calcified pineal gland. He might have had a tumor too. Sure. <laughs> Look, you do this all the time. It's my turn, <laughs> God damn it. That, this is this is too far of a leap. It's not a leap, he falls. Da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> one note as i will say is i loved i was excited to see shane brady in this i love the fuck out of his shirt in this it's a white button down with pink flamingos all over it i love that fucking shirt <laughs> yes it's good i just like that the movie starts with cool imagery and hits you with a weird bat right away and then doesn't go back to the weird bat for quite a while yeah the initial one he gets in the elevator and there starts to be kind of this flickering imagery of the elevator where the lighting in the elevator starts to change and then we cut back to his partner in the hotel room as she's staring at the TV and the camera tracks over from her on the bed to the wall where the television is. And then we can apparently see that a Jeff Vandermeer novel is staying in the next room and is starting to leak through. (laughs) (laughs) It looks like Annihilation is just busting in and and, and, and falling in. It's funny. I had that same impression. It made me think of Annihilation. So and she has a fantastic slack jawed expression through this whole thing. And then it cuts. So it's intercutting between her and it's intercutting between Shane Brady. So for the Shane Brady bit, he's in this elevator and he starts to see this expansive desert like everywhere. He looks just sand everywhere. Yeah. And then 
he kind of looks around and you know the ceiling of the elevator dissolves he sees birds flying overhead i love and this then bit. he he drops <laughs> it's very brief <laughs> but you see his head drop below frame it's that moment when the, when the floor gives way yeah yep and, and he drops and there's a shot of him slow motion plummeting down towards the sands and i really want to cut of the just him dropping from beneath frame to the shot of him falling down and just cut in the goofy yell yeah because unfortunately for him and what we established later in the film is that wherever you're at no matter where this pill takes you you're in the same location so if you're seven stories up and suddenly the building's gone guess what (laughs) you're taking a small journey straight down on your face But, you know, it's it's problematic for a couple of reasons, and we'll get more to You're that You're problematic later. for a couple of reasons. <laughs> Although, okay, this... I'm going to be so defensive this whole podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, wh- right off the bat, uh, obviously, this deals with time travel to some degree. And the one thing that seems consistent, except maybe for this scene, is that you only go backwards in time. Everything is backwards in time. Almost every single encounter that is portrayed in this is going backwards to different periods in time. And I was very frustrated with this scene for half a second because I was like, what the hell? When was the New Orleans area a freaking desert? When did they say, no, no matter what time they go back in, you're pretty much in the same spot. So if we're going on that premise, then the same spot, when the hell was New Orleans a goddamn desert? At which point my wife just turned to me and said, maybe this is the one future scene. And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> They mentioned that on the commentary to talk about, you know, whether it goes back and forth. Maybe it was in an interview or, you know, whether it was the future. Yeah, because in the script, it's not a desert. It's forest. It's which would make more sense. He's over a woodland area and he plummets into that. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. It's goddamn beautiful. It's a gorgeous scene. I love it. It's visually stunning. I see why they wanted to do it. It just told like the science part of my brain just went like. It just exploded. I was like, ow! <laughs> but what Moorhead said is, you know, this might be the one future thing. You know, it's this is the, gotta the be. climate change ravaged New Orleans. It's got to be, because otherwise it just doesn't fit. And and that was the one thing uh, that made it work, that shoved the piece into my head. It's still a bit off because every other encounters in the past, and statistically it seems to imply that would be a uh, more of a constant than... than it, it works, it just hurts. yeah but you know while he's having his experience of falling in the desert hers kicks in and suddenly she's sort of back in more like pre-colonization phase and a native appears and their block eyes as a a snake comes up and and bites her and they both eastern diamondback rattler is yes (laughs) (laughs) which we'll get into more of later (laughs) at which point we get title card (laughs) <laughs> yes we get the title card and this is my jimmy laval note which is just jimmy laval coming with that wub wub because <laughs> jimmy laval's done this you know kind of electronic influence score with a lot of his other movies he's done with benson and moorhead but he dials the electronica element we mentioned annihilation earlier it has kind of that same auditory element to it whereas i just call it yeah, bringing that wub wub there's a lot of wub wub <laughs> in the score for this and i'm fucking here for it i i'm down for it i not only did i enjoy it you know, audibly, it just kind of inserted this consistent dread for me throughout the film, mm-hmm. which kind of helped keep me on the edge of my seat. I, he does an amazing job. He really does. Yeah, and after this, we cut over to what was originally the opening of the movie, 
So the, the actual opening of the movie was originally stars, which we cut to frequently, just kind of this nighttime skyscape. And we see that a, there's basically a star that falls down, this speck of light, and the camera kind of zooms in on it. And as it comes into frame and kind of flourishes, we find out it's the ambulance instead of a star. And then the ambulance arrives at its destination and we meet our two leads. So here's how they're introduced in the script. Exterior, Lower Ninth Ward, New Orleans, night. Slam. The doors of an ambulance fly open. The metal legs of a stretcher screech and rattle. Running it on one side is Dennis Daniels. Late 30s or early 40s, but there's no difference these days. His kind eyes are exhausted, his paramedic uniform crisply ironed, his sleeve tattoos colorful. On the other side, Steve Danube. Around the same age, African-American. His dark eyes are so frickin' nice you want to drink with the dude and talk about life. (laughs) He struggles to tuck in a jersey as they hustle. I, I love that. That's a great yeah. note. <laughs> so again, I just <laughs> the best stage directions, the best descriptions in Justin Benson's scripts. They're so much fun. Well, so let me ask you this. Do you think Steve Danube is a cousin of Mike Danube or some sort of relative? Because Mike Danube is from Resolution. Yep. It could be. It's one of two specific connections I caught. Yeah, the other one. <laughs> the other one's, the other one's real blatant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we meet Steve and Dennis. Steve is played by Anthony Mackie, who you may know from The Hurt Locker. Uh, he's Falcon in the MCU and also in Altered Carbon. Very high on my to-do list. Very excited for that. Dennis is played by Jamie Dornan from Once Upon a Time, The Fall, and Fifty Shades of Grey franchise. Hashtag not my Christian. So this is also where... <laughs> Little note on Jamie Dornan. I knew who he was. I didn't realize he was Irish. Yes. Very much so, yeah. Because I, you know, when would I have ever seen him interviewed before? I didn't watch the commentary on Fifty Shades of Grey. I watched the making of this and, you know, he starts talking. I'm like, what the? F-? And I had one of those moments because his accent's pretty good. in this. Mm-hmm. It is. His accent in this is much better than it's been in his other American roles that I've seen. But I've seen him do other things with his original accent. Or- I mean, he might as well have been a synthesoid in, you know, Fifty, 50 Shades, Shades of Grey. So. Yeah. Like, Hashtag not my Christian. Yeah. And he's... Again, I tried to go in cold on this, but I wasn't just being completely honest. I haven't been that crazy about Jamie Dornan and and anything I've seen him in going in into this. I wasn't like, oh, shit, he's going to ruin this movie going in. But it was just going in. I wasn't excited, you know, by his casting because it was like uh, he just hasn't really thrilled me. And I think I think this is by far the the best performance I've seen from him. Agreed. So me too. But the only other one I've seen. Again, so (laughs) not my Christian here. (laughs) So this is also where we meet their incompetent driver, Tom. And and having been dropped off at the wrong house, they walk 32 houses down while he turns the ambulance around. Tom, morphine stealing Tom as we. (laughs) (laughs) I love Tom. Now, after this walk that starts uh, what Benson and Moorhead referred to as their wonners, where it's a five minute single shot scene. This, again, in terms of them doing, like, technical growth, that's my note here, is let's get ambitious with this motherfucker, is this yep. big... Now, there are more continuous takes in here, but this is one that kind of immediately jumps out. As being, this oh, is the this big one for me, yeah. yeah. Or, as they talk about on the commentary, the only one anybody ever notices. <laughs> yep. And I'll admit, it yep. was the only one I ever noticed <laughs> in the film the first two times through. I felt bad about it. Like they were watching, I'm listening to this commentary and I felt like I let the team down <laughs> by not not noticing that the other ones were specifically wonders. And I'm going to use that term forever now because that's great. It makes me think of the wonders from uh, 
that thing you do. So I'm just enjoying that immensely. The other ones that occur later, it, it would be easier to put cuts in. Yeah. And they could have done it in this too. But I mean, those ones definitely jump out as like, oh, you could cut there, cut there, cut there. They didn't, but they could have. So as they approach the house, there's an, uh, which is clearly an addict on the front porch saying they need help inside. We enter the building and the, right off the bat, we see a man with a chest wound and a woman unconscious in the back room. The addict says uh, she was awoken by French and the wind, which I thought was a nice touch. And on the wall, when Steve heads to the back, we see on the wall it says, Time, Time is a lie. lie. I like that. That was exciting. And that's a special effect that Benson and Moorhead did themselves. Unfortunately, Steve finds the hard way that the woman he's working on is OD'd on heroin when he gets a needle stuck into his hand. Yeah. <laughs> it just gave Mike Flanagan tons of shit in Oculus for how much he hates hands. And then <laughs> we got to this, and this is worse than any of that. Because, like, degloving and stuff are obvious makeup effects. It's rough, but I can make it through it. But this scene, I have more O's in my nope on this than I did for our Oculus discussion. Because this is a long series of nope. <laughs> Fuck that. It, it looks very painful. And you it's just have no idea where moment. that needle has been. Oh, my God. Now you've got some idea. <laughs> There's a, some ongoing subtle, I feel, but pertinent and i feel clearly placed uh social commentary here as well throughout the yes. film because <laughs> while he's working on this uh od victim the cops show up and immediately draw on steve yes they immediately pull a gun on him i think uh it's dennis who actually say no he's cool it's steve we're okay <laughs> racism is going to be a theme in this but yeah yep. it, yes <laughs> consistent so steve injects the od uh victim with the appropriate cocktail she wakes right up uh, Dennis applies a dressing to the chest wound, finds an exit a wound in the back. They hand uh, the addict and heroin user over to the cops and take the chest wound victim uh, in the ambulance. This scene, I think, is just incredible in how much it sets up the feel yes. of this movie. Mm -hmm. It's got that kind of sickly, almost yellow night lighting that's so prevalent through so many of the shots, especially the ambulance shots and the bridge shots. It has a dreamlike quality to it he's kind of floating through it yeah it's just you sort of float through which you know is is not remarkable for the handheld one take kind of thing like this but it really does feel like you're floating through it and it just feels like it sets up the mood of everything because it's it's a bleak scene you know mm -hmm. this is an awful thing they're seeing and that's before they discover the half melted sword yeah <laughs> and it just, it sets the stage for so much, you know, their conversation as they're walking in kind of gives you an idea of who they are. And just for an opening scene to introduce your main characters, it's nearly perfect in my mind. It sets the stage, gives you some clues as to what's happening. It shows you the melted sword. He finds the coin that repeatedly comes up. 1721, gold to bloom. They tell you right up front, you know, racism still sucks. And this is before you go to the past, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it's... <laughs> And the last thing to note is they find the synchronic rapper. I have a quote talking about the inspiration for this. And it it made me think of this scene when I read it. It's from an iHorror interview. They're asked a bit about the what influenced this. And they both answer. So Justin Benson, Alan Moore, a lot of Alan Moore comic books. Yeah. Aaron Moorhead. Oh, man, I feel like we just kind of wanted to make a sci-fi almost famous or something. Justin Benson. It was a little bit influenced by a dark song. Ooh. Aaron Moorhead. It's a little in there, yeah. And then Justin Benson. 
Which, by the way, that movie, we wrote a movie about that exact same ritual, but it was Aleister Crowley doing the ritual, and we saw a dark song at a film fest and thought, thank God we didn't make it. We would have made the same movie. <laughs> and when I read that, it made me think of this scene, just the, the way it moves, the, the vibe of it, the inherent darkness in what's happening, and the characters trying to navigate that darkness with whatever tools they have. It's a good start for a movie. It was not my favorite scene in the film, but it was up there. It was well done. That's funny because they were working on an Aleister Crowley TV show for a while from from what I remember, which I, I assume is dead because I haven't heard anything on it in a while. But yeah, that's funny. I hadn't thought of the, the potential parallel with that with the Dark Song, which we mentioned before, we love the fuck out of that movie. Yeah. And also the Alan Moore from Hell connection comes up a lot in this. Yeah, that comes up in the commentary them talking about from Hell. I was excited because they talk about reading travels by michael crichton which i've read when i was in high school one summer they mandated we had to read a biography doesn't matter who but someone's biography so i was like i like michael crichton and i barely remember any of it all i remember is him talking about how much he admired sean connery while working with him on the set of the great train robbery and how he always used to eat with his hands and shit an odd thing to take away but i was really excited i was like holy shit they read travels and they've mentioned alan moore before so i'm just throwing this out there we know they're alan moore fans we know their shit gets compared to Lovecraft, and that's going to come up later in this review as well. So my dream, ever, ever, ever get them on this podcast, is get them on here to review Providence. Or oh my god, we'll just cut to the chase and we'll just do Neonomicon. <laughs> One of the two. Oh. One of the oh god. <laughs> more Lovecraft things. That's the dream. That would be good. That, that Well, that'd be amazing, fantastic, and awful at the same time. Yes. Wow, <laughs> that is rough. Yeah, Providence is rough. <laughs> <laughs> it is brilliant. If you're listening to this and when this episode comes out, this episode will be coming out in February, but I just read there is a, so as of now, Providence is out of print, but it's about to come back into print in a softcover edition in April, May, I think. So if that interests you, just wait a couple months rather than shelling out like hundreds of bucks for an out of print trade. Also just, you know, gird your loins because it's rough. Or just don't. It it will hurt you. (laughs) It will hurt you. They also, they mentioned on the commentary having, they mentioned Jerusalem. Yeah. And I own a copy of Jerusalem and I haven't sat down and read it yet, but kudos to whichever one of them actually read that book because it's fucking big. (laughs) (laughs) That is a long book. But I, you know, I I wanted to reread From Hell for this and I haven't reread From Hell in ages. So I set about going to do that and I have not been able to find my copy. I have it. And, oh, (laughs) (laughs) i have your copy well that solves that mystery because that's not a small book no it's huge and (laughs) i have a lot of bookshelves (laughs) but it stands out on bookshelves i'm like what the hell where did i put this book i scoured my house this weekend looking for that should have scoured your house i'm gonna get in trouble for this one but you you get you lend it to me i read it all it's great i really liked it and I was going to give it back to you, but then Hannah wanted to read it, and we're still waiting on that. Oh, yeah, I know how that one goes. <laughs> you want me to just bring up Amazon and get one ship, two-day shipping to your house, Jake? I can do that while we're... <laughs> I'll get it back to you. I'll get it back to you. It's funny because that copy of that also lived in a friend's trunk for like six months at one point because oh, I yeah. loaned it to him, and it never came back, or finally came back. So yeah, I think I read your copy thing. too. I don't own it, but it's my, <laughs> which is funny because it's my favorite Alan Moore. It's impressive. I, well, that's hard to say. That's a whole other pod talking about Alan Moore stuff. But whether I like it more than White Towards Him is something I'm going to be thinking about for like a week now. So thanks for that. Sorry. 
or V for Vendetta, frankly. And we all agree top 10 rules. So, Oh, I love top 10. So we get a quick scene with uh, Steve getting blood work to make sure the needle stick is a non-issue. And he addresses the fact that, you know, he... <laughs> I got a lot of still... drugs in my blood. Yeah. So if he's... you could turn a blind eye to that, I'd really appreciate he's it. He's still working a very strong single life and... They agree to ignore the alcohol and marijuana and cocaine markers. <laughs> so now we cut to an outdoor party, which I believe is for Dennis's new baby. Steve gets the baby earrings so that when she's old enough to get them, she'll actually know who they're from. He's playing the long game. <laughs> oh, he's nice. right. A dress would be a waste of money. I mean, he ain't wrong. I liked it. It was nice. <laughs> At which point walks up Dennis's wife, Tara, played by Katie Asselton. From Legion, She Dies Tomorrow, and The League. I like her work. I think she's a great actress. Yeah. She jokes how Steve needs to keep away from the party because he slept with all the wives prior. (laughs) (laughs) There's this ongoing theme of Steve being called out for just being a complete hoe. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The scene where he gets called out by Tara, the Katie Asselton character, keeps going a little bit. Because uh, what this is building up to is Steve ends up going off to talk to Brianna, who's the oldest child of Dennis and Tara. So he says he's going to head over there. And that bit is a little bit longer in the script. So in the script, well, first thing I want to mention, this comes up in the commentary. In the script, Brianna was originally Brian. It was originally a male child. So if I read script excerpts and I say Brian, that's why. The dialogue is pretty much all exactly the same. They talk about that in the commentary, too, why they switched and it had a lot to do with just how good her audition was Mm -hmm. for that part. And I believe it because she's fabulous. She's she's terrific. Yep. But also, this is the first big laugh of the movie. Yes. I thought when she She hands (laughs) him the baby baby. and he immediately starts crying. Tara hands him the baby. He says, racist baby. (laughs) The baby starts crying, hands it back. So then Steve says to Dennis, he sees brianna slash brian sitting over on this rock this boulder which becomes very important and so here's the bit that was excised well the first bit is in the finished film but it keeps going steve i'm gonna say what's up to brian dennis he's been a little emo and he incorrectly thinks you're slightly cooler than me so give it a try steve can i give him a beer dennis yeah just put it in a cup tara will fucking murder me if he gets an underage (laughs) drinking citation in front of her boss Tara overhears this from nearby. Tara, in jest. Stop lying! No one cares if our kids are drunk! (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, the Brianna that we're actually introduced to is played by uh, Ali. uh, Apologize for the pronunciation. I didn't look it up, so sorry. O-N-E-D-S, I'm going to say. From Into the Badlands and Parenthood. Their introduction I really liked. It was a nice uh, cinematography touch where you keep seeing this one viewpoint of Steve talking, but the background's kind of blurry. And then just as we're about to introduce her, the, the camera focus shifts and she comes into clear view, sitting on the rock in the distance. It was, I thought it was really nicely done. I just, his line there is, you know, why are you over here when there's, you know, old fat people over there? I was like, well, that's, that's a little too real. Yeah, the line is, there's cake and barbecue and old fat people over there, which is supposed to be this, you know, derisive, uh, obviously, I, I can't imagine why you'd want to be over here by yourself. I'm sitting there thinking, hey, I love two of those, and I am the other one, so fuck yeah, cake, barbecue, and old fat people. It's worth noting, before he heads over the talk to Brianna, it does come up real fast that Tara is not so happy being a working mom and dealing with Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> Is leaving her a bit drained. So she she's dealing as best she can at the moment. 
So yeah, Steve goes and talks to Brianna, basically gives her the advice of, hey, you're 18, just be 18, you know, enjoy it and come have some fun. But before um, he can delve into more of what's bothering or what's wrong with her, he gets a call from his doctor saying, come in Tuesday. Yeah, and he doesn't seem happy about it. <laughs> no, yeah, not at all. Yeah, yeah, it's decidedly a bad call. Cut to Steve waking up in bed with a character who I don't... If we catch her name in the finished film, I don't remember. In the script, her name is Danica. And it's also mentioned in the script that he met her at this party. And a couple things here. First and foremost, perfect movie for Jake number one. PBR on the nightstand. <laughs> and there's a lot of PBR in this movie. But there's a lot is, of PBR in this movie. This is the movie. first one I know, took note of. I have a note about that a little bit later. We'll get All to right. it. And second thing, when he wakes up, this is how it's described as the two characters waking up. Dennis, as he finds his uniform among stray women's clothing, a young woman from the park wakes up. She grabs an open, warm beer and drinks. She has a faded, crooked unicorn tattoo covering her upper chest. She's face-to-face with a noble portrait of Captain Picard from Star Trek TNG on an adjacent wall. And then, in <laughs> italics, nerd alert! <laughs> is in the script. <laughs> nerd alert is a stage direction. <laughs> that pleases me That's to no end. That's amazing. So yeah, he's getting up to uh, head to work. They're clearly civil, uh, but when he goes to give her a kiss goodbye, she is not interested and shakes his hand and says, nice to meet you. Which just goes to further show that Steve is, does not have any solid romantic relationships. They're all very transactional. <laughs> it's also when we first meet Hawking. The dog. Mm-hmm. Was sitting on the bed, known as Hollywood in real life. I'm just going to grab the audio clip of Shasta from the end of the Oculus episode going, poor dog. And every time we mention Hawking, we'll just put in, <laughs> poor dog. <laughs> so then we cut to uh, Dennis and Tara. Well, before we get there, it's he goes out and he's. this is when he's looking out the window. Mm-hmm. At the tree. At the tree. And you see the scratch mark and you see how yes. deep that scratch mark is. And you get the idea that this is not the first time he is just standing out, looking out the window in a state of ennui or melancholy or, you know, whatever the myriad of emotions he's feeling at the moment. And just it's a quick cut in the scratch mark. But it was one of those things that really stuck out for me in this. Yeah, it's a quick edit, but you see exactly it's a deep groove that he's cut. There's that element of it. And the fact that we see this house again later in the film in a different time period. And so it's this literal image of digging up the past that we're about to see because he's digging through the wall to the old wall that we will see later in the film. So literally carving his way into the past. And it's one of those cues that really gets into the, the ideas of like, stasis and being stuck and disaffected and dissatisfied that are so core to so much of this you know it's a movie about going back and forward in time becoming unstuck in time for these characters who are very much stuck in a place where they don't like and just that little scratch mark and that little quick scene really really hits that well i thought so now we cut to dennis and tara talking about brianna wanting to move on to campus and dennis is Kind of shocked by this, but mostly just sad because he's going to miss her. This is one of those moments for him that really work and he's really happy with. But everything outside of these moments, he just seems to be in constant doubt and fear. And it's nice they intersplice these types of uh, moments, even this early into the film, to kind of give you a feel for what's going on. Yeah. And it's, it's not hard to pick up on how unhappy that marriage is at this point. And you really start to get the first feelings of it in this scene. Mm-hmm. Then we cut to them uh, driving to a new 
emergency case. Steve asks for codeine for his headache. Makes another comment about cops pulling over black men, which is why he can't drive the ambulance. This is when you find out his last name is Danube because he's not wearing his jacket in the other scene. I got really excited when I first saw it. I was like, Danube, yay! And then I realized, I've seen Resolution way too much. <laughs> <laughs> and when they get to the scene, they're like, so uh, where, where, where's the victim? And they just point to this like burnt out husk of a body. They go, that's a body, not a victim. <laughs> Apparently, there's a new kid on the force and he called it in by accident. Spontaneous human combustion. Main cop has a line here that's stuck in my head, too. Something to be aware of, honey bears. Just as delivery of that has been stuck in my head. <laughs> <laughs> At which point he shows them that this scene also has a synchronic wrapper by the body. We also, in this moment, get a close-up of what appears to be kind of a, a copper door handle, like, like mostly turned green uh, in the ashes. Very ornate. Yeah. Very out of place in this abandoned fun park area. It's kind of neat. This is shot in an abandoned Six Flags. That was one of the, the hardest locations for them to get because apparently it's been taken over by alligators, snakes, and other assorted <laughs> things that you don't want to shoot around. And they had to set up essentially a perimeter. They said they didn't see any snakes, but they said, you see alligators everywhere. And they, they had to set up a basically a perimeter around where they were shooting to keep alligators away from the shoot. It's a popular location because it's a creepy ass fucking old amusement park. Who wouldn't want to shoot there? <laughs> but yeah, alligators all over the place. And the, the scene later, what's supposed to be the French Quarter when they, they pick up the voodoo dude, is shot in the same theme park. It's shot in a different section, which is a recreation of the old French Quarter because apparently it's very expensive to shoot in the French Quarter. So they just kind of refurbished an area of that and shot there instead. Hmm. At the same theme park, taken over by snakes and alligators. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought that that was kind of great. They also, this is, you see the, the them riding around in the ambulance and they, on the commentary, they comment to Dave Lawson that you were the one driving around in the ambulance. And he's like, look, I have plausible deniability. Move on. <laughs> so my feeling from that was some of these drone ambulance shots were maybe not the most legal thing that happened in the making of this film <laughs> but something we may have to talk to our, our good buddy dave about someday yeah in addition to being fans of alan moore comics they might have also gone to the keith giffen school of filmmaking <laughs> 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 why to him <laughs> is this gonna be the episode we explain that doesn't nope, feel nope, like it nope, yet comic nope. episode yep. so now we cut to steve getting an mri uh, that's where we get some of the imagery he has he keeps having these flashbacks to what is clearly a moment in his past where we just keep seeing this image of like three coffins wet and clearly. Yeah, like, this is the first coffin flashback. Yeah. Like flooded out coffins that, that, that have been lifted up. Uh, we learn later uh, by Katrina. And we also see when he comes out of the MRI, he looks up and right on the screen, right in front of him is big red blotch, which is clearly a brain tumor. Yeah. And the dissolve to this is when they hold up the synchronic wrapper, the wrapper is, it's a black wrapper with a white sketch of a human head with a kind of a third eye in the middle of the forehead and this big, you know, atom molecule on it. And there's an immediate dissolve from that to a hospital radiation sign, which is the same thing. There's a lot of, you know, cutting between the same image um, or people in the same position as far as the transitions. In oh, this. I love those transitions. Yes. But also, again, one other quick thing. When he's in the MRI, originally was going to be intercut with what is now the opening with Travis and Lee in the hotel. But this is the stage direction for the MRI. Looking all THX 1138 up in that thing. Nice. 
Oh, good reference. You know, they, they talk. It's another. I'm going to keep talking about what they talk about in the commentary through the whole thing. They mentioned those those cut throughs where, you know, it's the two scenes. I forget what the term is where they, they match the two shots. And he said there were a lot more of them in the film. But when they re-edited it and moved things around, everything didn't line up. Yep. But there's technically more of those that were originally in here. And I yeah, I like those transitions, too. They do that in a lot of their films. And it's it's a neat thing, I think. Yeah, there's one of them at the end of this because, yeah, we, we they put up the X-ray or the MRI results, like Nick mentioned, and you can see there is something that is decidedly not supposed to be there, dead center of his brain. And there's a shot of him just kind of sitting there and there's a snap edit of him in the exact same position, semi hunched over, except now instead of sitting on the front of the MRI machine, he's now in the ambulance. So mm-hmm. it's really interesting, too, in terms of you know, the image of him being stuck and in stasis. But also, it's him just being catapulted across time in a smaller sense than we see, but it's still the same concept as something that the plot ends up being very literal about later in the film. This is also another movie where they pronounce it pineal. Yes! Just throwing that out there. I'm going to start keeping track of that. Because pineal comes up in a lot of the movies we do, as it turns out. Yep. Look, look. I know that the influence of this was taken from the short story that inspired Stuart Gordon's From Beyond. That it's not directly from, but I, my mind, my head canon is that's a Stuart Gordon homage to From Beyond. It's got to be. <laughs> that's, that's my head canon. <laughs> so yeah, now we cut to them going to the hotel case of Travis and Leah. And this is the first obvious sign that we're going to be doing some back and forth throughout the film. You know, up till now, you could almost feel everything was uh, linear to some degree. But now we're cutting back to the very first scene of the film. And this is also where we get to the fun Venom versus Poison conversation, oh. which, which apparently was inspired by Jeremy Gardner. Yes. <laughs> yeah. How great is that? I got so excited when they talked about that because it's the funniest like bit in the movie, I thought. I said Venom. I got ears. I ain't deaf. <laughs> <laughs> the snake Venom exchange is hilarious, but it's also prefaced by a bit that just made me laugh, which is so Leah is sitting there, the woman from the opening, her leg has this big wound on it starting to turn necrotic and they lean in and they say yeah she's just blank stare staring off exactly where she was staring before in the opening they say miss you happen to know what kind of snake bit you and she just mutters travis and what we know later is travis is the name of shane brady's character but with this exchange of miss you happen to know what kind of snake bit you and she says Travis, I just wanted the cop in the background to just grab his walkie. We need to put out an APB on a snake named Travis. (laughs) (laughs) That could be our fish called Wanda, a snake named Travis. (laughs) At this point, Animal Bob confirms the bite looks like it's from an eastern diamondback rattler. But the problem with that is that it's been decades since one's been in the region. And not to mention, second floor of a hotel. (laughs) And also have to ask, are you in a Pentecostal religion? Which, I'll toss this out there. If you're a true crime fan, watch the documentary Alabama Snake. That's currently on HBO Max, which is about a murder related to a Pentecostal religion. It's kind of an overblown true crime documentary where it does too much dramatization for my taste in terms of how it does things. It has the most amazing text bumper at the end I've ever seen. <laughs> it's funny. Cause it, those Pentecostals come up in a, the Donna Tartt book, little friend, mm. which is set in the South. And it, when he asks her that, that was the first thing that my mind jumped to. So Steve notices the synchronic rapper in the nightstand next to a big chief bag. 
while they go looking for Travis and find him smashed in the bottom of the elevator shaft, which, uh, uh, okay. So my first problem here was they're on the second floor. So when she took the pill and it kicked in, why didn't she fall down a flight of, uh, you know, of distance? Maybe it was hilly. You know, you can, you can kind of explain that to some degree. Maybe, you know, it's convenient that the, the hill came up to meet her, but while you can explain her, he clearly fell seven damn stories down, if not more, and was nowhere near his anchor point for return. His body should not have been in the shaft. He should just be gone and not returned. Later on in the film, Steve has to climb a damn tree to get to the same height and anchor point he needs to get back. Whereas this dude falls like seven floors and should not return, in my opinion. I feel this was a flaw. Or maybe he just walked into an open elevator shaft and fell because he didn't actually travel. He just thought he was somewhere else. Yeah, it, it, nothing with his death adds up for me. I can almost come up with excuses for her, but his is just broken. It just doesn't work for me at all. Not to mention, he's fucking smiling. That's <laughs> right. He's so happy about it. And it was a great shot, but it was also, it was like, maybe. It's smiling Shane. You couldn't have gotten Dave Lawson to do that. Came out with smiling Dave. Dave has a much better smile than Shane Brady. He's great, but Dave's got a great <laughs> smile. That should have been Dave's cameo. Smiling Dave. I mean, it's just, <laughs> you know, I'd almost be able to say, well, maybe Jake's right. Maybe he was high beforehand, but we see him screaming for his life as he falls to his death. They're like, oh, come on. His face does kind of start to turn sanguine at the end of it, where it's kind of this, if you look, he starts to smile a bit right before it cuts to the, the slow motion wide shot of him plummeting. Maybe. Also, worth noting, there's a bit in the script as the Jamie Dornan character goes off to find Shane's body. Anthony Mackie is still working on Leah. And there was a bit that was cut where as he's working on her, she flickers out for a minute. Mm. And for a brief minute, he sees the snake across the room. So I guess there was a kind of a concept at one point, which is early on, that it, things were a little bit looser. The fact that she's still not quite anchored in the present time. So that could have contributed to it. Hmm. I chose to not worry about it. I was just happy to see Shane Brady show up. It was good to happy. see Shane Brady. It was good to see Shane Brady. Very briefly. Plus, you know, the Venom poison conversation that was fun (laughs) it's just great so you know whatever now we get another a great transition as well because it's this overhead shot that we get which then transitions to another space shot which transitions to a space screensaver on the doctor's monitor i was like hey he's got the old windows 95 screensaver pack apparently with the starfield doctor and this is great he's awesome and says specifically like you mentioned he points to the the mri and says that's your pineal gland. And every time they say pineal, my note is just Crawford. <laughs> There's a cut scene on the, the Blu-ray with the doctor that's actually got a, a funny joke at the end of it that they cut. And I understand why they cut it, but it's so rare that I get a genuine laugh out of cut scenes. Yeah, it's real short, but it's worth watching. The, yeah. the Blu-ray is worth it. Apparently sitting like a soda cap on top of his pineal gland is a tumor. And I think that he if i remember correctly he implies that he doesn't know how long it's been there but uh it may be partially contributing to the fact that this gland is not calcified as it does for most adults it is still a healthy teenager's gland as far as uh, he can see from the uh from the mri which is definitely not at all a meta commentary on his lifestyle <laughs> which then the doctor just free of charge Decides to talk about how his boyfriend thinks it acts like a third eye. (laughs) 
right at the bat, nice representation. It was a nice little throwaway that the doctor has a boyfriend. I thought, I thought it was nice. Yep. And he says that there's a decent chance that you only have six weeks left to live. So here's some pamphlets and for some support groups, and we should begin radiation treatments immediately. Yeah, it, it it's rough. And as somebody who had a brain tumor, I can attest that those aren't comfortable conversations. No. And mine was obviously not that bad, but it's still one of those things where somebody tells you something's growing in your brain. There's no way to play that off as like, oh, all right, well, whatever. Yeah. And Anthony Mackie does a really good job of portraying the emotions in a situation like that. Throughout the whole film, like in that moment, later on, when he's with people, when he's alone, he is consistently excellent throughout this entire film. I was so happy that he was a part of this. And I'll, I'll say this, and he gets the literature and it shows up and it's sitting on his car seat and it shows up in a few shots. And I wish that didn't make me think of The Simpsons every single time, the Blowfish episode. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Nick gives gives him a pamphlet and it's like so you're going to die and it just yes. <laughs> and i kept flashing back to that every time i saw the pamphlet it's like this is the wrong 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 reaction to have to this you see this mark here it looks like my thumbprint that's trauma no. <laughs> but even so the the non-calcified uh pineal gland it's just, it's another one of those things harping. It, it, it's indicative of who he is and where he's at in his life and the problems he's having. You know, here it's, here's a deadly thing in your brain that's keeping, you know, that's in part because of your youthful lifestyle. It, it, it just, it's not super subtle, but it's well done to weave all of this in and out in their, their overall idea of these characters in the plot. Well, I'm imagining you were happy about the scene that follows this up which is the scene with Brianna and her father Dennis going out and talking a bit about her future, because this is two perfect movie for Jake items back to back. Yes. One, they're playing basketball. Yep. Two, while they're playing basketball, they reference the X-Files. <laughs> I, I did enjoy the X-Files reference. He was like, you like the X-Files? Be an FBI agent, because <laughs> that's how my brain works, too. But also, I'm pretty sure neither of them have either either held or shot a basketball before <laughs> it's very awkward in what they're doing with the sports ball there <laughs> he's also he's got a line in this that confused the shit out of me and i watched it several times and i still can't figure it out to the point that i googled it to see if it was a thing and he goes let's play horse without the e what um. <laughs> does that mean <laughs> i just i can't just a shorter game <laughs> But what's the difference between four shots and five shots? I, I, like I, but he says it like it's a thing. It's like, let's play horse without the E. And I'm like, what is that code for? What does that mean? And I, I still can't. Like, I Googled it. It's like, is this a thing? I play basketball all the time. And and I, I just, I, I, it's going to be, if we ever have these guys on, it's going to be my first goddamn question. What does that mean? My, my guess is it's a reference to a familial inside joke or situation like this came up when she was little sure you know. maybe yeah but but what why <laughs> <laughs> is it in, is it in the scripts i mean i don't know it's you're just out of yeah. spite gonna drop the last letter of their names if we ever get them all i guess benso and more he <laughs> <laughs> let's play synchronic without the c it's synchronic <laughs> 
But the other end of it is if you play horse without the E, you're just playing whores. <laughs> it's just enough. It's a whole, I, I, it just got, it, it's still stuck in my brain. I can't get over it because I can't figure it out. Dad, I don't know what I want to do with in my life, and I'm not that desperate. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, that line aside, it's a good scene. It's a nice little bonding scene. I enjoy what they're talking about her, you know, trying to tell her dad's like, look, yeah, my grades suck because I don't know what the point of grades are. And he's like, what is this bullshit? And I'm a thousand percent certain I had that same conversation with both of my parents at least twice. <laughs> it, it wasn't so much as, the a, as a solid C student. It's just <laughs> one of those things. Well, her, her main point here isn't that, you know, what the hell are grades anyway? It's more of a she doesn't know what she wants to do with her life. She doesn't know what she wants to become, what she wants, where she wants to go forward. And so what's the fucking point of investing in these classes that may mean absolute shit to her in the long run? Right. Yeah. And it's the exact same thing I told my parents, <laughs> which, you know, at, at, and, and you end up a middle aged podcaster. So there's the, you know, <laughs> welcome to your future, Brianna. <laughs> <laughs> at which point he goes, well, you know, I'm going to tell you this before, uh, but really listen this time. And then he has this really in-depth conversation with her that you don't see any of right <laughs> they cut from it because you know, in the end the, the, this movie's not about you know why you have to just do the work and go to school it's it's also for the edit at the end when when he yes. starts to yeah when he starts to refer back to it and the one key word you get from it which was a different word in the script oh i can't i look forward to hearing that is it horse without e <laughs> <laughs> Now we cut to the strip club where it very much feels Steve spends a large portion of his time. Yes, this is the infinity <laughs> mirror sequence yes. where he's sitting in a booth and we see Anthony Mackie looking, you know, very sad for obvious reasons, rightly so. But on either side of the booth are mirrors. So it's just this infinite sequence of mirrors of Mackie, the seat opposite him and just alternating which, again, is just extremely apt for the content of this movie. It's also a repeat of the image Byron used in Resolution, holding up the mirror, and you get that into infinity, the mirror to a mirror. And they're drinking PBR again! Yep. Well, they, there's a lot in this scene. So they talk about one thing with the, the mirrors, the way it's shot, is because they didn't really want to have a bunch of naked, beautiful women writhing in the background of this you know, scene where this you see this guy's relationship fracture in almost you know real time mm -hmm. they do a lot of things like they as they you watch it as it cuts back and forth eventually you know it starts with both of them in the shot and by the end it's these close-ups where there's only one of them in the shot just symbolizing this fracture in their relationship but the very beginning of the scene we want to we want to start because steve comes to the table and he comments on the song playing he says you remember that song which is syrinx which is a Red Man song from Rhapsody Overture, which came out in 1997. He says, you remember that Red Man song in high school that, you know, sampled? And it samples Debussy's Syrinx, mm -hmm. which comes up again. Yep. Yes. It's what's playing in the old racist's house when he goes back. It's the same song playing. And there's some interesting kind of stuff with this, I thought. Uh, first of all, it's a Red Man song that, you know, Debussy. Am I saying that right? Not Redman, Debussy. Debussy, I believe. But Syrinx is it's a, one of the more famous flute pieces, uh, one of the more important flute pieces that is based on Greek mythology. And in Greek mythology, Syrinx is a nymph. And I'm, I'm going to read some shit to you here because why not? 
Syrinx was written as part of incidental music to the play Psyche by Gabriel Moray. And, you know, whatever, pronounce these right in your head. I don't know how to say them. And it was originally called Flute de Pan, which I'm sure is not right. My pronunciation, not what it says. It was given its final name in reference to the myth of the amorous pursuit of the nymph Syrinx by the god Pan, in which Pan falls in love with Syrinx. However, as Syrinx does not return the love to Pan, she turns herself into water reeds and hides in the marshes. Pan cuts the reeds and makes his pipe, in turn killing his love. And I, I was just, I was really interested in the kind of parallel, you know, the lost love parallels this feeling of love not being returned and this song showing up a couple of times. And I, you know, again, the name is Syrinx, which is not that far from Synchronic. The word syringe is based on Syrinx mm. and syringes are important in this. Uh, a Syrinx is also a fluid filled cavity on the spinal cord, which is neither here nor there, but is an interesting fact. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and I wonder how on purpose all of that is. Because these ideas of lost love and unrequited love and not returned love and the fracture in relationships that parallels Dennis and his wife and his family and Steve and all of these, you know, his entire life. And I, I was just interested that they chose that song and how it dovetails into a lot of these themes that not necessarily the Red Man song, which doesn't <laughs> have as many of those themes, but that sample the syrinx sample and all that and syrinx synchronic it felt connected even though i know like the chronic part of you know comes from dr dre which is a little bit earlier than than red man and the album the chronic which apparently aaron moorhead did a lot of photoshops in their group chat and i would love to see those photoshops about synchronic and the chronic because that must be awesome but Anyway, it was it was an interesting thing. No, and I I'd thought. be I'd be curious to find the rationale because it, that's not it in the script. In the script, the song is Bella Bartok's Violin Concerto, so it's a different piece by Redman. Well, what yeah. album's that? On? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so they don't reference it in anything else. The line is simply, he says, "Remember this song from high school? It samples old ass classical music by Bella Bartok, Violin Concerto." And actually, looking at it now, I see the the song they're referencing. It's further up in the stage directions when they're establishing the strip club. The line is, a naked woman dances slow to Dr. Octagon's hypnotic blue flowers. No shit. Nice. So there's something for us to investigate. Yeah. What the connection would have been. So they went from Dr. Octagon to Red Band? Mm-hmm. God, I want to go drinking with these guys so bad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So maybe I'm giving the, the kind of overlapping themes and sirens a little bit too much thought here, but I still think. No, no, no. I, I doubt it that. It fits. It's, yeah. Obviously, there was a, deg a large degree of thought put into the change up. So, yeah, I'd just be curious to see you know, what spurned that on. So that's something we, we will hopefully find out someday. In the meantime, I spent most of this scene just identifying with Anthony Mackie. Me being a single man as a married person tells you their problems. And Anthony Mackie's response is just simply, I haven't felt anything but whiskey and a hard dick in a decade. It's like, <laughs> I love his, don't tell me your fucking problems response. <laughs> I just say, yeah, you're a married man with problems. Prob yeah, <laughs> he says it verbatim. I thought it was funny. <laughs> and the conversation ends with uh, Dennis asking about the painkillers he's been taking. And just says, you know, please don't become a, a junkie paramedic cliche. Yeah, which was the one thing I looked up in an interview going into this, because when he had the line, I promise I won't be a junkie paramedic cliche. It made me wonder. So wait a minute. How much of an influence was Scorsese's bringing out the dead for this movie? You know, the movie he did with Nick Cage. 
and it hadn't occurred not to me that big as it turned out yeah and so that's the one thing i looked up was whether or not that was an influence they were like oh yeah we, we hadn't seen it until afterwards i was like oh, okay that answers that but it, it's an especially with all the ambulance shots and the, yes. the night shots and yep. the the yellowish thing yeah, bringing out the dead so also. maybe maybe dave lawson had seen it could be this is probably the key scene in the movie i think or one of the key scenes in the movie just and again with the mirrors the fracture in the relationship the sciency presence and the music it just a lot of the themes seem to converge here and then it sets up the entire second half of the film mm-hmm. and it's just really well shot well done well acted it's just a very very good scene i i was just really enamored it's one of those scenes where i rewound and watched a couple of times just on its own especially cuz i the first time i saw it i didn't catch that the cameras were inching in and separating them more and more. Yeah. I noticed the second time, it's like, that's interesting. So, uh, yeah, it's good stuff. We now cut to them on a different case. Um, they're at a college party where we find a corpse that was holding a phone, clearly trying to call them in, and a, an unconscious girl. They wake up the girl. They say, is anybody else here? She's like, well, Brianna was over there. She took the fake ayahuasca, but now she's gone. And immediately, Dennis is like, ah, I have Fuck. a Brianna. I, yeah. <laughs> I have one of those. He calls home. She's not there. They put in a missing persons report. Yeah. A couple things on this. One is when Anthony Mackey first shows up and he's talking to the girl and she says, oh, yeah, Brianna took something. He has the line says, OK, where's Brianna and what did she take? I really hope that's a reference to the human tornado where Ruby Ray Moore says, where is Bucky and what has he had? But the other thing is, there is a, a great shot. This is a bit of Jamie Dornan's acting I really liked, which is when he's outside, he's calling his wife to say, go to our daughter's room. Is she in there? Check and see if she's home. And you can see his face crumble Yep. when she presumably says, no, she's not in there. And then we get, as he's reacting, Anthony Mackie is looking on and we get the shot of him looking skyward. And now we get a top-down POV shot as this drone shot like whips back skyward in reverse and it's this very Arcadian shot, quote unquote. Yes. It's something yeah. from, it's very much kind of the, the same, you know, sky POV, godlike POV we would have had in The Endless or something like that. Absolutely. There's a couple drone shots, but this one really stands out. It's also mirrored later when Anthony Mackie is in the final time travel trip and he's in a trench. They do kind of the same shot then. Yep. And then we cut to Steve in his car crying, clearly just kind of dealing with the emotion. You know, not only is he now dying, but which is essentially his niece is now missing. It, like his whole world is kind of crumbling around him. Yeah. Originally this was right after the MRI. Mm-hmm. This was earlier. So he's just reacting to the news about, yeah, hey, I've got a big fucking lump in my brain. So this is one of those really interesting things in terms of, from an editing perspective, rearranging something and context, giving something more weight that wasn't there in the filming of it. So this is a bit of rearranging. I thought was interesting. I, it's also the drive in, I think is where you get the second coffin flashback is right after Steve disappears while he's on the way to the... And the coffin flashbacks, are I thought, were, were pretty interesting. And then if you watch the commentary, the story they tell about actually filming those it's is great. just funny as hell. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I won't even get into it, but it's funny as hell. So he's in this smoke shop, and what, head shop, smoke shop, whatever you want to call it, and the clerk is just perfect yes. for yes. this job. <laughs> she is so great in this. Yeah, because what he does, he immediately buys them out of what's left of the synchronic. He asks if there's anything more in the back, and she says no. He goes, well, when are you going to get more? She goes, well, never. It's discontinued. At which point, he just goes off on her about how this shit is killing people. And she's like, 
I'm so sorry. I didn't realize I said something. To fa- I'm. I apologize. Like she has just no idea what is going on. <laughs> and if you've ever been in a head shop, you've had that conversation where you're talking to someone and they're half there, maybe in and out a little bit. But on his way out, a guy tries to buy the Synchronic off of him. He keeps saying no. The guy's like, "I'll give you two grand right now," and Steve just like no and storms off. And we cut to Dennis and Tara uh, printing out uh, Have You Seen Me posters and talking about what to do. And they get into a bad fight. It's clear that this is devastating to the two of them. And they're starting to take out this tension on each other. Yeah. It is a clear wedge and divide between them that could easily make things so much worse if left untended as it is currently. And I'm going to throw this out there. Dennis is, you know, he's not a sympath- particularly sympathetic character through this film. He, he makes a lot of bad choices. He does a lot of mm-hmm. stuff, that's, and a lot of it's on him. I'm on his side in this scene. <laughs> Just throw that, because she's like, well, can't you do more? And he's like, I'm doing all of this. I'm printing this stuff. Can't you do more? He's like, like what? I'm like, lady, She's clearly down. breaking down. Yeah. Well, she set off and, by the and, river comment yes, specifically yeah. as he says, well, you want me to tell him to drag the river? And then she grabs onto that and said, why would they drag the river? No. And she, to which she's he's basically clearly, like, well, obviously, if she's dead. I understand. I'm just saying. <laughs> she's breaking This is the only time I was on his side. It was the only time. The problem is he doesn't address the fact she's breaking down. He just takes it all personally and storms off. He de- he's not there for her. He's in this moment. He's just like, what the fuck? And leaves. <laughs> I was mostly stuck le- leeching onto the parallel with her character from She Dies Tomorrow, who's in a similar predicament, you know, yeah. with Jamie Dorn. So, well, what do you want me to do? He's, well, how about we go stab your sister? <laughs> what will that fix? Well, we won't know until we try. Now, will we? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying this was the only scene where I felt any kind of sympathy for him in particular in this entire film. But I guess when he's crying later and he finally admits that he's a fuck up. But in this one, I, look, I don't win a lot of fights. That's clear. But, you know. <laughs> Anywho. <laughs> so we're back to Steve alone in his bedroom at night when he hears an intruder. And after searching the apartment, he finds the stranger from before asking for the synchronic in his closet. I love this scene. <laughs> yeah, he's hiding in the closet, you know, quite poorly and, and makes a noise. And Anthony Mackie is holding this baseball bat and he tells him, you know, come out of there. And the guy comes out and, he, and he's being very nervous, obviously holding his hands up. And Anthony Mackie then tells him, you know, come out of there. Take your jacket off. And which he's obviously telling because he wants to make sure this guy isn't armed. But it took me a second because the line is, you know, come out of there. Take your jacket off. Make yourself at home. Take your shoes off. I said make yourself at fucking home. You want a PBR? The answer is yes, god damn it. I still love the image of him holding a bat. Make yourself at fucking home. You're giving me flashbacks to the host now. (laughs) I'm sorry, no, perfect party. Perfect perfect party. Yeah. Oh, dear Lord. I I just like that it plays on your, your horror movie instincts when you're watching it and it's not a horror movie scene at all. No. It turns out, you know, the dude is actually in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Steve calls the cops and says, you have until they show up. Lucky for you, this is a bad neighborhood. And the stranger says that he's Dr. Kermani, played by uh, Ramiz Munsef from several single episodes of TV shows like Shameless and Modern Family. He is also the chemist who made Synchronic. He makes synthetic drugs, but the FDA has been recently stomping on their inventory. So they were rushed to release a DMT-like drug 
that they synthesize from a red flower that only grows in a very isolated region of the California desert. Dang. I was so happy. It's the same red flower that we've seen in, in Resolution. Oh, I We love are it officially so much. in the shitty Carl universe. Yay. Welcome. Welcome back. SCCU. <laughs> Synchronic is Arcadian Red Meanies. Which is now the MCU <laughs> because they're doing Moon Knight. And I'm convinced this is all part of a long plan. This is all the MCU the whole time. The Arcadian is Conchu, damn it. <laughs> this is where we also get him describing the mechanics of Synchronic which he does a couple ways. One is he does a drawing on the back of one of Anthony Mackie's pamphlets. But the other thing he mentions is to describe how time works, he holds up perfect movie for Jake number four example, which is he does it <laughs> using a vinyl record. <laughs> I, I, I took issue with this. Of course you did. I did. Of course you did. Because he basically... Didn't we just say that? <laughs> he, he says, you know, synchronic messes with the pineal gland so that you experience time as it actually is not how we usually experience it. You know, and he shows the record. It says, you know, you know th this is all of time, you know. And, and so I I feel that's not a good explanation for what happens. Because literally these people are just moving to a different point in time. That's it. They're just, they're moving to a very different point in time. You're not changing your perception of time. You are moving through time. Your perception doesn't actually change. Well, for adults, it's just perception. For kids, it's you're moving through time. Backwards. You get that backwards. Kids don't go back in time. Only adults do. Wait, no. I am no, not yeah, John. No, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> you are absolutely correct. Ding. <laughs> Hold on. Can you say that again? Sorry, I just need that again when nobody else you are talking. Absolutely correct. <laughs> there we go. Dr. Hoovy, Dr. Hoovy, you were absolutely right. <laughs> the because things you told us all were true. If you only, only, only knew. Because <laughs> while Adults have calcified pineal glands and are more like ghostly images of the past. Children are physically transported to these time periods. Yeah, adults are kind of in flux. I just, I think the record explanation is very good. That was what, you know, you know these songs all exist. You're just, you know, different points with the needle. And that makes a lot of sense. They, they talk a lot in the commentary about this scene and, and those explanations. And they, they actually cut more of an explanation yes. from it. And then they start recommending a whole lot of books I'm never going to read, but it sounded pretty interesting. I, I feel the description is nice for explaining why you can't change time, and I'm down for that. <laughs> you know, like what has happened is has already happened, and what will be is already you know is, and I, I'm down for that. It just it, seems, it feels like a very linear transfer of, of of travel versus the way it's explained to me. There might be a little bit more of it, but this is the the bit I I snipped out, which is. So Steve is, he's explaining some of this stuff about the, the pills and, and Steve says, you know, all right, I don't believe in time travel, but you made a drug that kills kids and that's all kinds of fuck no matter how it works. Dr. Williams presents what he sketched, two molecules that look almost identical, but non-superimposable mirror images. There's a sincere enthusiasm to his demonstration. Dr. Williams, simple ethambutol points to left molecule. This one treats tuberculosis points to right molecule. This one causes blindness, but at ammonia and he draws another hydrogen and nitrogen, you breathe it in, you're dead. On Steve. What's your point, nerd? That's a stage direction, not a lot. <laughs> Dr. Williams, sincere all. Tiny changes make huge, unpredictable transformations. And I wasn't aware of the time travel until a week ago when my business partner, Kyle, disappeared. Dr. Williams hands Steve a photo. A young man grotesquely covered in smallpox cysts. Even his eyes look like they have mutated acne. He's holding a paper with a recent date. That's Kyle. He contracted smallpox during trials with a drug. 
In his suicide note, he said he had gone into an isolated rural area to dispose of himself as to not uh, spread and eradicate a disease. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. And I understand why they cut a lot of that out, because I think it, it gets a fairly concise enough explanation for, I'm going to say, most viewers, but not everybody. Uh, and yeah, so I understand why they cut that, but I, I still think it's a good scene. And the doctor is he's really plays it well. He's great, especially when he leaves and he pauses and he says, you know, talks about his life a little bit and then bounces. It's just it's a good scene. He's got that one last line, like there's just one more sample to eliminate. He's like, ooh, yeah, oops. So Steve convinces him to go by saying he's flushed it all. Uh, but after he leaves, we realize that, no, it's just all in his trash bin. <laughs> right on top. too. Yeah. Clear as day. <laughs> and that bin's full. So he's telling the guy, I flushed it all. Please don't look down. <laughs> <laughs> Then we get a quick shot of Steve, you know, getting a radiation treatment again. And then we cut to uh, just after the OD case where we had the sword wound patient in the ambulance. Yeah. And this is the scene that that very distinctly sets up the rest of the movie. And I can see why it was moved from where I don't know if it was originally supposed to be there. But this is this happens immediately following the opening scene. Yeah, it was originally chronological. It was earlier. Yeah. And then it gets moved here and it, it really divides the two halves of this movie. So at this point, daughter's gone, relationships fractured, and now Steve has been given a path or an idea, and they set it up by talking about the Einstein quote that we read in the the intro. The rest of that was not exactly to the movie, and it, it's a good scene. Like, and it, it's got that that kind of nighttime, not dreamlike quality, but you get the it's got a good vibe. And I love that line about saying the distinction between the past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. I love that. It's a good quote. And then we, we kind of launch into the uh, the super sci-fi half of the movie. Well, first we, we get note that there's a morphine discrepancy, which he immediately starts, you can tell, starts suspecting Steve right at the bat without question. Like he doesn't bring it up immediately, but you can see in his face he's like, well, we're here now. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when they get called to Bourbon Street, where they find a man speaking Creole dressed up as Baron Samedi. Uh, with a compound fracture. This set is particularly gorgeous. Everything's in mm -hmm. a soft blue, but it's punctuated with all these orange lamps. Yeah. So it just has this little bit, and which is appropriate because coming up, there's going to be a transition shot of the sky as it goes from blue to orange to violet. So it, the, the colors just kind of back to back immediately parallel it. All shot in an abandoned theme park. Yeah. And this is where uh, Dennis and Steve's relationship further devolves and hits yet another speed bump. Yeah, because Dennis starts walking him through basic process, and Steve's getting angry. He's like, what the hell are you doing? I know my job. And he's like, well, when you're high, I don't want it to be on me that you killed someone. Yep, to the point that they, uh, they get in an argument outside. This is where, where Tom intervenes, and we yep. get, the, get the fuck back in the ambulance, Tom. And they start going at each other, you know? Dennis makes his accusation about you know him being a morphine addict now, and... Calls him a 40-year-old wasted child. Steve calls him out as a selfish asshole. Doesn't care about his family. They physically fight. And then Steve takes off. And I, I like that it was, you know, a very realistic kind of fight. You no know, haymakers or slugging. It's just, you know, push, push, grab, fall to dirt, roll around. Yeah, it's it's great. Steve goes back home, drinking whiskey from the bottle. Depressed. You know, obviously dejected, you know, watching television. 
pulls out one of the synchronic pills, takes a hard look at it, and it's like, fuck it, pops it in his mouth, washes it down with whiskey. I think he does that after he sees Brianna on the news. Yeah, yeah. there's the news bit about how she's still missing. So he pops it. They do this great bit where the after he pops it, and, you know, the score is constantly ramping up, ramping up, ramping up, ramping up tension, and then it just cuts to obviously a few seconds later, score drops out, and he's just checking shit on his phone. So yep. obviously, <laughs> something's about to happen. Oh, but it's not immediate. So And then he's hugging his dog. <laughs> yeah. So there's a couple... Quick cuts, and then he gets up. And this the, starts the uh, the next one-er. Yeah, the next one shot. So, yeah. so the, the television image goes out. He goes up to the TV, gets right in front of it where it's just static. And this is beautiful. From the television side of the screen, from the right, a firefly comes in and passes by. Which, A, is a great image for the swamp locale that we're about to be transported into. But it's also kind of perfect, this firefly, in juxtaposition with the TV screen. It's kind of like taking a single pixel mm-hmm. made manifest it's yep. so it's just kind of this really perfect literalization as this firefly tracks across and this is a wonder as he turns around and watches his surroundings kind of blink out of existence or kind of go in and out even before he turns around like it just starts getting so bright behind him like mm-hmm. something is coming yeah and this is one of those you wouldn't expect necessarily to be a wonder because anthony mackie's only in frame for like a third of it maybe yeah to some degree but it is one so and you can see the previs version of it on the dvd the the light behind them made me think of uh she dies tomorrow too mm. seeing the big light right behind him just was one of those things that kind of made me flash to it a little bit well now we get an alligator which reminded me of the opening of tex montana so <laughs> <laughs> that was a good movie <laughs> It's a Jeremy Gardner film that, that we'll probably eventually be talking about on this podcast. But again, a consistent theme with these travels is that you are traveling only in time, not in space, as relative to Earth and our locations, at least. Because as the walls peel away, as he falls backwards in time, that one tree that he has next to the house that had like the, all the carvings in it, and you actually see the branches shrink in on themselves and the carvings fade away as it becomes a younger version of itself. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a very nice touch. And we get dickhead conquistador. Yes. As he's referred to later. (laughs) Dickhead, dickass conquistador. Sorry. It's the line specifically played by Walker Babington, (laughs) who is, this is not his first time on the pod because he was in the purge TV show and he was also in the hunt. Oh, Oh, shit. Awesome. This also the conquistador inspired my favorite line on the uh commentary where they start talking about lord of the rings and how you basically making things look old helps them look more realistic but they're, they're talking about it and then he goes and then he pauses he goes technically there's not a conquistador in lord of the rings and i just laughed out loud at that <laughs> it, just, it was just funny they also say the conquistador calling him a ghost was directly lifted from from hell seen later in from hell where there's some time travel sort of stuff going on and somebody gets referred to as a ghost and that was directly inspired that line in this and Mm. my comic nerd erection was huge frankly (laughs) at that point well just before the threats you know it's clear he's kind of having this moment of this is the best trip i've ever had you know (laughs) this is like i can feel the water this tree trunk feels amazing to me i'm gonna play with this frog smell the flowers and then he totally gets flanked by a goddamn alligator and a conquistador. <laughs> that alligator had advantage, man. That was going to be some, some high damage coming in. And the conquistador <laughs> swings at him. He falls backwards and falls onto his couch as the blade comes down. 
and there's a little bit of overlap from the past to the present. When he realizes he's back home, there's still a slit in the floor of his house where the sword came down. Yep. Oh, that's nice. That was well done. This is a point where it's time for video testing of breaking out a camcorder to record some tests. So now we transition into paratemporal activity instead of paranormal activity. <laughs> this is just in case he dies. He wants people to know what's happening and, uh, you know, just to document his process. The videotape effect I thought was pretty cool. Like it looked right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was appropriate. Yeah. And he goes on to say that Synchronic is a time travel pill that lets you go back for about seven minutes. And he takes the pill while he's talking. He's talking about the swamp experience. And he says that the things that you touch while on the drug are distorted, much like the gold doubloon that was brought back in the sword. Yep. You know, these things don't come back completely whole. The, the, the process corrupts them. But he's going to try to use these experiments to try to find a way of bringing Brianna back as he fades away while the camera watches. Yeah. And in the background, as he fades away, it's something that's established earlier, but we see it here. But yet there, there's another mirror lying on the floor of his room. So, again, the mirror imagery, which keeps coming back, which is appropriate because the idea of lenses were so important to the previous ones, particularly Resolution of the Endless, the idea of the lens by which you perceive reality. And then this, the lens being a mirror by which you perceive reflection and, you know, past and whatnot. So it's great that the mirrors keep coming back in juxtaposition with anthony mackie's character and also this is the scene which i'm guessing is how they broached the movie to dave lawson you know when justin benson wrote it we're gonna need more money for our next movie dave how much money are we talking about guys uh like woolly mammoth money <laughs> <laughs> and you say that because when he fades away he reappears in the ice age <laughs> yep. basically standing uh where his house would be Many, many, many thousands of years ago, where he sees a man of the spear, most of everything is, is just whited out. He collapses to the ground from the cold, and when he comes back seven years later, he has to immediately thaw himself out in the tub. <laughs> just ice all, like, frosted on his beard. I've got one note on this, which is, how fucking cool is it that there's a mammoth in this movie? Very fucking cool. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and I looked it up because I was curious. And there were mammoths, woolly mammoths in the southern United States. In fact, there was a whole treasure trove of them found in Mississippi mm -hmm. not too long ago, which I didn't know until I looked this up. So I thought that was cool and accurate. He makes note that the only difference that changed uh, from him taking the pill was where he was standing when he took the pill. So he gets suited up for the cold, gets a whole like armful of firewood, takes the pill again in the exact same spot and shows up again in the same time period, back in the Ice Age, where he sees the mammoth and, and sees it walking away. And he's actually approached by a Cro-Magnon man who gently touches him with a spear to make sure he's real, and they share fire before he comes back to the present. And he's got the, the great monolith, you know, he's talking yes. about the past. And, you know, this man who's probably 10 years younger than me that looked so much older. Despite his paleo diet. <laughs> the past fucking sucks. It was, it's a great Which delivery. Probably, <laughs> it's, it's the line of the movie, honestly. Yeah. And, uh, but it's also the impetus for the movie right there, because they're talking about, you know, we have all these ideas of time travel and this and that, back to the future and going to the 50s and all this and that. It's only good for a couple of people. Yeah. Yep. Everybody no. else, it sucked. Yeah. <laughs> and certainly not people who look like Anthony Mackie. No. And that was, you know, that's a big part of this. And they, they talk even on the commentary about it. it's inspired by a certain movement 
within the United States about people wearing a certain kind of hat that talks about going back to the past that didn't actually exist. Mm. And it's the larger point of the movie is, is about that. You know, the president is a miracle. And this will come up again later. But uh, yeah, the past fucking sucks. And he's not wrong. <laughs> no. This shit was cold. <laughs> I mean, Willie Mammoths are cool and all, but like I'm cold in this studio with my space heater off. You know? <laughs> what an inconvenience. <laughs> the most important takeaway from this experiment, though, has to be that if you take the pill in the same place, you'll go back to the same time. Without this rule, without this context, without this effect, there is zero chance he's going to be able to get Brianna back. So luckily, this is in play. It's interesting, though. The way they play this is almost as if there are these mini wormholes that permanently connect certain locations to certain times. Yeah, like hot spots. Kind of, yeah. yeah, like no matter where you're standing, the pill will work and that location will take you to the same place each time. So you can almost thinking of time as a solid block, as a frozen river. It's just riddled with these rivulets of wormholes that you can travel back and forth in. And it's important to think of it in those terms because that's the only way that explains also how later on they have to use the pills again to get back. But we're getting ahead there. Isn't there an 80s song like that? Like, time is a river. Some shit like that. That sounds that sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's love is a river. I could I, Now I can hear it perfectly in the head, but just that bit. So that's the rest of my night. <laughs> the only question he has left after this particular experiment is how did she get stuck in time then? So he still needs to figure that part out. But we cut back to Steve talking to Brianna on the rock. This is after he was interrupted by the doctor. They talk about family versus being single. And Steve then talks about how her dad fell into having her and, you know, how they had her very young, but, you know, he wouldn't have it any other way. And uh, that she should be happy as she'll have a better life regardless. Well, now it's time for the, the next stage of the test, which is, this is a bit that raised a couple of questions, because now we've he's established, all right, so inanimate objects that are in direct contact can go back, but when they come back, when we return to the present, they will be distorted, either melted yep. or changed shape or to some degree, warped in some way, shape, or form. So the question is, what happens to an organic object, which we yep. test on his dog? Man, get a fucking hamster. <laughs> that was my first no motherfucker. Go buy a gerbil or something you don't have an attachment uh, to. You can that's much you don't have to cradle. You can just stick it in your pocket, man. And there's that. And also it's like they've established at this point he has a finite number of synchronic pills. The ones he has, because it's been discontinued, yep. are all the ones the there are. Now conceivably That is further uh supported by the fact that just before this experiment, we hear on the radio that they found that the doctor committed suicide. Yes. And so his one potential avenue to get more has been eliminated. So it's also it's like, I, maybe I would try getting a pill splitter. And <laughs> like if, <laughs> if I'm going to do tests, I would probably say, let me try a quarter of a pill first and see if it doesn't work. It doesn't work. But now I know. <laughs> Man, Benson and Moorhead, though, they're they're rough on animals. Oh, dog gets shot in resolution rabbits get eaten in, in spring i don't think any animals die in endless right some birds take it on the chin but, but <laughs> just oh man no yeah poor hawking has it the worst <laughs> the, yeah the, 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 poor puppy. they talk a lot about that in the commentary too 
and they, they mentioned they want to make t-shirts that, for Hawking, which is like 2018 to 1932 or yep. something. <laughs> There's even a line of, I think I wrote a, I made a note about it. Yeah. Hawking is alive in 1932. And they just, they say, you know, he had a happy life. He lived, for, you know, longest live a dog ever, you know, all this stuff. <laughs> like, they get asked about this dog a lot. Sidney Breyer is alive, except in 1932. <laughs> yeah. The time frame for this jump is 1932. Steve cradles the dog, takes the pill, goes back, finds himself sitting on a couch in the exact position of his With Syrinx playing. With Syrinx playing, yep. Stands up, finds himself reflected in a mirror again as he stands up. And we find out quickly that this house is occupied by an angry gentleman who in the script is described as, quote, think white trash J.K. Simmons. He's <laughs> <laughs> a very racist old guy. Yes. He's pissed immediately calling for the police. And then comes back with a knife. I just made me think of groundskeeper Willie. <laughs> Steve is chased out of the house where he passes more racist old white guys as he goes by. His timer goes off. He's like, okay, time to go home. This was like a reverse Die Hard 3 what the fuck. You could just feel it in the air. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he shimmers, but does not return. Realizing that, unfortunately, a return trip requires him being at the arrival point. Yep. So he hides in the woods, waits for the owner to fall asleep, takes his pill to reactivate the process. Technically, he doesn't wait for the owner to fall asleep. He waits for the owner to turn out the light <laughs> and then immediately goes in. I'm like, Steve, give it 15 minutes. <laughs> he breaks the window, gets in. The old white racist comes back. And unfortunately, the dog gets away from him as they're in a, a bit of a fight. An unsuccessful fight, as it is, because he keeps falling through each other. <laughs> yeah, and he finally lunges towards Steve, and Steve screams no, and we get a cut to black. And now we cut to the camera's POV for this next bit. So cut to the POV of the experiment. So it's it's a black screen at first, and when it comes up, it's Steve, who's now kind of cradled a bit, and, you know, thinking a knife was heading his way, except now he's back in the present. But... This bit is so well staged because so it immediately raises the question of, of the information we've got so far is, oh, shit, what happened to the dog? Yep. And the way that's framed is it's facing Steve on the couch. He's holding the leash. Yes, he is holding the leash and the leash goes up the back of the couch and over behind it where we obviously can't see. So it's so well staged of him as he's acclimating and there's the tension in the air of where's the dog? And as he basically moves throughout the set piece pulls the leash up and say, all right, maybe the dog's still on the leash, pulls it up and the collar is there and the collar is split, warped and distorted from transit. Then makes his way to the window where stuff is still in the process of changing outside. And we get the saddest, like Don Bluth-esque, you know, <laughs> all dogs go to 1932 shot of this sad. <laughs> look on his face. It's like, says like, Steve, you done me dirty. <laughs> can't tell if the dog is mournful at what's happening or enraged that it doesn't have you know the anatomical ability to raise a middle finger <laughs> but you know it's not like he didn't survive the trip he just got left behind unfortunately and so he will live out the rest of his days in the 30s bringing on an observation three don't be late and observation four you have to be touching what you take back and how much of anything that comes back is chaotic. And he does not have enough pills left to go back for Hawking. Poor Hawking. Poor Hawking. 
At which point, we cut to Dennis telling Tara about the Katrina cleanup. About how Steve got stuck coming to investigate some coffins that got pulled up out of the cemetery from the storm. And unfortunately, they two of them were his parents and one was his sister. Her coffin had been this pulled is, up. This is brutal. Rough. It's rough <laughs> yeah, as hell, yeah, man. This dude, this dude has bad birthdays. <laughs> yeah, her coffin was pulled open and looted. And Dennis immediately thinks of his own daughter, so he just passes right out, leaving Steve to clean everything up. This was on his 30th birthday. Where we cut to the bar. Where Steve complains about Back to the Future being Man, bullshit. Man, fuck Back to the Future. <laughs> the past was hell and the only good thing was the music. Which is, again, a callback to the creation of this movie. And then we cut to the rooftop where Brianna went missing. And Steve sets up the camera, sits in the seat, and takes his pill. And this is a fun scene where he's like looking up at the sky and you see the moon switch position. Yeah. Oh, uh, that, made, that made me happy. That yeah, was, that was it was well a cool dissolve. It's done as this wavy dissolve, very similar to... Yes! In effect, to the moon's depiction in Endless, Endless particularly yeah. in the split sequence with the two moons. Yeah. Very much felt uh, an Endless throwback there. It was nice. And the intro to this, as he's sitting in the lawn chair, it starts with, again, a skyward POV that kind of zooms down onto him sitting in the chair. So, again, a very Arcadian-esque, godlike POV that leads us into this scene. And again, your position in space matters, and he's on the damn roof. So as the house goes away, he falls through the tree <laughs> that he's in the top of, down to the ground. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was interested in them talking about how this was originally going to be him being underwater and having to swim up. Ooh. Yep. I thought that was kind of cool. And then, you know, the him swimming down being the uh, climax of the scene. That would have been fun. Apparently also very hard to do and very expensive. Oh, I'm sure. And very cold and wet. Oh, yeah. Because they were shooting in winter. So at this point, he's expecting Brianna to be around somewhere. And he sees this group of men around a fire. And he heads towards them, hoping either she'll be there or they'll be able to help him out. And as he approaches, they appear to be this, this small religious sect. That This is a fun miscommunication. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're clearly actively trying to summon a spirit. And immediately believes Steve is it. Score! <laughs> <laughs> Success! So they want to hold him close and protect him. But as far as he's concerned, they're trying to secure him <laughs> and yep. subdue him. So he's like, no, 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 no. And immediately, you know, there's a small scuffle and he's running back to the tree. And to be fair, the, the priest is holding a loop marker who do fuck him a jig. And I wouldn't <laughs> trust that for, you know, all the money in the world. Because we know that those things lead to bad news. He sees the lawn chair and grabs it and it pulls him back. It acts as an anchor point. Unfortunately, there's been no Brianna during the entire exchange, which is when the owner of the house shows up and admits that, oh, yeah, she totally wandered off somewhere. This is not the point where she took the pill. He's like, God, get inside. You're too damn high. <laughs> Go back inside. You high as fuck. <laughs> Apparently, shooting on that roof was awful. It was rickety. They couldn't have too many people out there. It kept raining. Oh, man. It sounded like a miserable experience. Speaking of people being miserable, this is where we get Anthony Mackey back in a bar being miserable. But again, he's reflected in the bar's mirror. This is when Dennis shows up and gives his full-on self-pitying midlife crisis speech. He's worried they're getting divorced. He thinks that Tara hates him, and without Brianna, there's nothing to hold them together. And to be fair, she probably does. And the thought of him losing her causes him to break down openly crying in the middle of the bar. <laughs> yeah, to which Steve instantly just puts money on, like, check, burp, burp. I'm taking this weeping mess outside. <laughs> they leave, and Steve says all that matters is family. 
We got to hold on to that. Don't lose sight of that. He wish he had that. You know, all these years he's been wanting that. And now here he is, you know, dying of a brain tumor. Yeah. There are things worse than death. Yeah. This is such a good scene. Mm-hmm. He says, like what? And he, well, like accidentally leaving your dog stranded in the past, rushing to the window just to see the dog evaporate before your eyes. Wow, Steve, that's fucking specific. <laughs> also, one quick thing here is this is where Steve confesses to Dennis that, you know, hey, I've got a brain tumor and I didn't tell you. And this is how that little exchange, this will be kind of the last main script bit I read. So that's how that bit describes Steve. And then I found out that I was dying, that my brain has a fucking tumor, and all that stuff became trivial, that there is meaning in what I do have, and I want to spend the time I have preserving that. Steve clocks Dennis's stunned face. Steve, listen, I'm in treatment, and I found out it's working. But when you're facing down the end, you realize there are things worse than death, and none of them are the things that upset you before. And then Dennis says, how long have you known? Now, clocks is used as a verb there as in registers and it's used like that way <laughs> multiple times as in but, register something but when i hear someone saying clock as a verb it means you lay a motherfucker out with a fist so it sounded yeah. like steve just punched him in the middle of a monologue and kept going <laughs> hey man i think you're fucking wrong with you said bam <laughs> listen i'm in treatment <laughs> so that took me a second reading i was like wait what that's hilarious he also says he's got the treatment on pause because he realized it was starting to calcify his pineal gland. Well, yeah, he's, he's worried it would it would stop his ability to travel. And that's the, the one cut scene kind of explains that, and that's why they cut it. This scene also has two of my favorite lines in the film. And one is Steve talking about his life, and he says, you might see James Bond, but I experienced Charlie Sheen. <laughs> that's a great line. Yep. And the other one is when they're talking about when they mention the driver stealing the morphine, he goes, it's not misplaced rage if the guy is a fucking idiot. (laughs) I think that probably 15 times a day. (laughs) At this point, they sit down in front of this like really nice house. Apparently it was Anne Rice's house. Yeah, it's Anne Rice's house. used to live there. And and I was like, oh, I've been there. (laughs) Oh, nice. (laughs) Yeah. When we took the tour, we passed Anne Rice's house. I'm like, oh, Yes. I have an actual connection to the scene. That's awesome. So yeah, and at what point they say, you know, the real problem with finding the love of your life is it will never happen again when the rest is hard. And at which point Steve counters with, you know, the difference between your life and mine is random events, chance, and luck. That's it. And also systemic racism. But And systemic <laughs> racism. <Yeah. laughs> Not said is there the big fourth one. <laughs> And then they go to visit Steve's family. And by that means they go to the graveyard to visit their graves where he shows Dennis the tapes that he's been making. And they start discussing the actual plan. Dennis wants her back, but he's worried about Steve and says, no, I should be doing this. And Steve's like, you can't. I'm the only one with the, like, you know, the special pineal gland. So all I need to know is, you know, do you know where she might have done this? And then we cut back to the rock from the party. The always rock. Yeah, leave a message somewhere permanent. So, yeah, and this is the rock she's sitting on when we first see Brianna. Carved in the side of it is always A-L-L-W-A-Y-S. In the script, it was anything instead of always. The other note is the script does establish why she would have gone there. There's an offhand reference to, oh, yeah, she used to go to that boulder to smoke weed. So that's how we know she would have gone to that boulder. So I have to say, this this closing scene where they're just sitting there and they're talking about yeah, they're drinking PBR by this river and, and talking about death and stuff. This gave me fucking PTSD to college. 
Yes. Yes. Like I it literally used to go down to the Charles River in Boston with my buddy and drink and talk about, you know, high minded college student bullshit like death and life and sex and, you know, rock and roll and all that stuff. And I'm like, oh, this is too much, man. Too much. Too on the nose. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, it's a hell of an exchange. Mackie is is very very good in this sequence. Yeah, but and there's the anecdote Dennis has to counter him is saying, "Remember that old lady we we saw?" And he's as leads into this big thing Dennis has about mortality. But he starts it with, "Yeah, she had this book on her nightstand called Facing Death with a Smile." I just wanted Steve to go, "Hey, I read that one." <laughs> but yeah, this is one of those sequences also that that kind of hits particularly hard now because I think everyone's even aside from reminding of sequences like this in our youth, just the concept of ruminating on death, A, we're getting older, but B, everyone's in a pandemic right now. Yep. So yeah, ruminating on death and part of why she dies tomorrow was so timely. Yeah, the ruminations on this are kind of more more timely. Yeah. This is where we get the line, uh, the present is a miracle. You know, should, should be- Some presents are more of a miracle, but you know, I get the point. <laughs> and he asked about the reason behind the misspelled always. Dennis says it has to do with a, a case they had where, you know, yeah, they found the book, like you said, and he thumbed through it and read about how just about everyone dies on a bed. But there's a tiny percentage where it's a sudden death and that's their business. They're in the business of seeing the exceptional ones. So they know how it ends. And before then, there's always infinite possibilities. All the endings are basically the same, but before that's infinite possibilities. And so the last thing that he said to her was always smash this is when the bottle drops because uh steve has traveled into the past and the bottle has fallen and smashed where we cut to steve in the aftermath of a battle with mortars still falling all around him in the the biggest set piece in any of their films yep 1815 is where we traveled to now with the battle of new orleans when is, you gotta imagine anthony Mackie's first was, oh shit i landed in the battle of the blackwater fuck <laughs> <laughs> You know, and and the battle has passed him by a little bit, but the aftermath is still there. Yep, still some mortar falling. In fact, while he's running for cover, uh, he almost runs into an unexploded mortar charge on the ground. You know, as he's running for cover, he happens to see uh, a man in front of the fire. He dives uh, into a trench for cover, filled with bodies. He hurts his leg in the process. Real people, not fake bodies. Yes, because uh, they're cheaper and look more real. Probably didn't take a lot of convincing, so we need extras to have what? Have Anthony Mackie crawl on him. Sign me up. (laughs) (laughs) Steve calls for Rihanna and finds her. He's like, how did you find me? He goes, the message. And she's like, what message? And that's the point where my fucking stomach dropped. I'm like, oh, fuck. (laughs) I know where this is going. So he gives her a pill. You, You already knew, though. Yeah, yeah. You knew. So he gives her a pill, and they run for it. Uh, now they're on different timers. He's got maybe three minutes before his window uh, closes. She's got about seven. He gives her a quick rundown of the rules and the stakes. The bombing stops and they're running. And she sits on the rock when the looter shows up. Uh, the looter is played by Bill, Ob- Bill Oberst Jr. From Resolution. I like to think that this isn't just a cameo from this previous. I like to think that this is Byron. From Res- he just got a bad fucking batch of that red flower, smoked it, shit went sideways, his little trailer went away, and he said, all right, I'm going to roll with the punches, and he's just been wandering the countryside and walked from fucking California to New Orleans. Like, I've escaped the Arcadian, now what? <laughs> wow. that's And his 
accent is whatever. You, you can only pick up very few words, which is on purpose. Yep. And apparently he, he was only on set for a day and had worked out almost all of this stuff beforehand because he's awesome. Yeah. So it just I, I didn't realize it was him at first. Like until I watched the credits the first time, I did not realize that that was Bill Oberst. He's got him like uh, he's Bill Oberst. The looter has his rifle trained on uh, Steve. But I found this note on IMDb, which again points to the large community of gun owners who apparently like oh, to like comments Lord. on IMDb because he goes, they keep coming back here. I know. He's like Towards the end, when Steve goes back to find Brianna, he's confronted by a French slaver who seeks to claim him as his own. The slaver levels a musket at Steve. The musket is a flitlock, yet is clearly not primed as the frizzle plate is forward. This would render the weapon <laughs> incapable of firing to the circumstances. Perhaps the fog and smoke of war prevent Steve from spotting this. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, no, he, no, it's just not what he, <laughs> Steve noted gun nut as established in the film. Nowhere. Uh, like it's just he sees a rifle pointed at him and all he thinks is oh shit not yeah aha behold the flintlock <laughs> <laughs> i found that particularly amusing <laughs> well, plus oh it very quickly devolves into steve registering that the guys in close proximity did the unexploded mortar mm-hmm. and trying to nudge him closer and say yeah please step on that motherfucker which he doesn't had two passes with it with both feet but neither one lands on it but at this point when he misses the mortar, Brianna's timer comes up, the last timer, and she vanishes into the present. When another mortar goes off, startling the looter, who then stumbles backwards into the mortar, blowing himself up spectacularly. <laughs> yeah, I like to think this is the addendum to the conversation they had with Dave Lawson, which is, oh, in addition to Woolly Mammoth money, we also need blow a motherfucker up money. <laughs> <laughs> I believe, if I recall, they intended for this explosion to be like a fourth of the size of what it actually was. <laughs> it was significantly larger than they were planning. But at this point, Steve runs to the rock, but it's too late. He only half shimmers and notices there's no message on the rock. In the present, Brianna and Dennis are reunited. And they see a ghost-like Steve on the rock. Steve and Dennis approach each other, kind of looking lovingly at each other like brothers. And they shake hands, and we cut the black. Well, Dennis glances down very uh, briefly. Yes. Uh, and so what uh, I'll say here is <laughs> the script keeps going and gives a more definitive answer, seemingly, to what happens next. Which I won't say, because on the commentary... Benson and Moorhead specifically say, yeah, get us drunk at a bar sometime and we'll, t- and we'll tell you what happens. So I'm not going to say exactly what happens in the script. But what I will say is my headcanon is, again, from before I read the script, is they shook hands. Anthony Mackie, you know, disappeared and was stuck in the past. And then we just smash cut to Jamie Dornan building the fucking resonator. So he can go back to his friend because this is in the from beyond universe and ends with him flipping the switch. And there's a naked Anthony Mackie there. You know, Steve, is that you touch me? I've seen such sights. It's just a body. But my mind is indivisible. Bodies change. Oh God. I, I have not read the script, so I don't know what the definitive answer is, but it, by my canon, he's screwed. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, Dennis is looking down as the last of him fades away. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> and and the opening shot, like we mentioned, is is hands out of focus that come in focus, and so your perception of this 
finale is tied in with that is is your read on it is do you think that steve comes into focus or do you think he goes out of focus so well stuff in the present is an anchor he grabs on that chair and that anchors him so it's too late reason to believe he might have come through he's nothing but a shade a shimmering shade left over like the dog is my opinion i don't know if he had if he had went over and cuddled that dog that dog might have come back i feel much like the opening shot in reverse hands that were part have come together and now things are fading out of focus i think he's gone i don't really know like it, it could go either way but you know so much of this is about fulfillment and doing stuff with your time and getting unstuck in time and getting unstuck in your life i i'm not sure it matters too much it's about knowing your priorities family is what should matter and connections and and the love and relationships and families we build though these are the things you need to hold on to and these things you need to be willing to give up for i thought it was a terrific end yeah i love the ending i was big on the ending it was great and yeah that's synchronic i adored it i i think it was a nearly perfect movie in communicating what it wanted to communicate with artistry with visuals with great performances with you know it's not as funny as their other movies but the 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 laughs are genuine and sincere they do a great job just top to bottom you get the idea of what they were trying to convey in this and it comes through very clearly but in a really very entertaining way and like i said i've watched it four times now and I like it more each time. And that to me, that's almost always the hallmark of a special movie where I find something new in it. I find some new visual that I like. But I just think these guys are two of the best working right now. And this is another example in their canon of just a, a huge achievement and a step forward in what they're able to do in terms of having more money, higher profile actors. I loved everybody in their previous movies. So, you know, the higher profile actors necessarily you know, something I'm looking for from them, but they had it here and it really worked. And I just, I just think it's another one of those, it's another step on, you know, what's going to be a great career. And I think eventually they're going to have something where they get real money and they're going to make something that's just fucking spectacular. And we're going to see them winning shit like Oscars. Well, here's hoping. I really enjoyed it. I liked their other films better mainly because I felt this one had the, the, the hangups as we discussed that really uh, hooked me. Unfortunately, I felt the other films were a bit more seamless and I realized that's on me. <laughs> I'm a stickler for these things. And it just, it just, it hooked on me, but on the whole, great acting, great cinematography. I loved the story. I loved what they did with it. I loved everything about it was excellently done, just expertly done. And honestly, if I had to pick one complaint, one thing that I, I really will hold against them for this film, is that this movie does not have Vinnie Coran in it. Uh, <laughs> that's what that's I was going to say. That's, my, was, that's the biggest problem I have with this film. When Jake was talking about the performances, I was like, yeah, but you really wish it was Peter C. Uh, and, and Vinnie Curran as the leads, don't you? I know, don't right? You? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that would take it to the next level, I feel. And I would probably be more forgiving. <laughs> Vinnie Curran traveling through time. <laughs> what the fuck? I'm just saying, I think of anyone that we saw going to the past. I think if he had gone to the past, I think he did it much better. <laughs> I think it would have held up much, much better. Hey, it's white. <laughs> it would definitely have helped him out a lot in this case. <laughs> a whole different movie in that case. <laughs> So, no, if I was casting Vinny in this, he would have been the doctor. Uh, don't be wrong. The one that made the drugs. Mm. I'm not saying I wanted him in the lead. I think... I, I think... 
Because how, how great coming out of that closet if it's fucking Vinny Coran? Oh, oh, I, <laughs> I shit in your closet. If they had stuck with the original oh. plan from the script and left Brianna as Brian and had the character you know be male, but that could have been Vinny Curran. Jamie Dornan's oh. son is Vinny Curran. And <laughs> all the stuff is still the same. Like Vinny Curran's like, honestly, the basketball is like, yeah, I don't know what I want to do to get, when I get to college, Dad. <laughs> Just everything else is the same. <laughs> Beard and all. Anthony Mackie was perfect. I really, really enjoyed Jamie Dornan. Uh, not Matt Christian. Uh, but, you know, if somehow they had snuck Vinnie Coran in, I, I, this would have been a perfect film for me. Just have Vinnie Coran <laughs> in every other role. <laughs> have him play the wife, the kid, the doctor. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I really, really dug it. Uh, the mechanics of the time travel stuff. Anytime you you play with time travel, as many other filmmakers have said, you know that's kind of playing with fire. If you want, if you yep. get too much into the nitty gritty of it, so I didn't dwell too much on the mechanical stuff of it, just because I know Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson are much smarter than me. And I was like, well, I know they've done their research, so I'm I'm just mainly going for the ride on that. There were a couple bits and pieces I had logistical questions on, which have come up as we've gone through. But for the most part, yeah, they, it was like, they hey. give you a, a reading list in the uh, commentary. I should have yeah. written it down, but it, there's a, there was some science books One in, in particular, but yeah, one that I didn't write down, but it, it has a miniseries that I intend to watch. It was a four-part miniseries adaptation. The parts I really need to, to go back and really think about, too, is it's where I really firmly settle on this in their hierarchy is going to depend on rewatches, because again, it's stuff pertaining to the restructuring because what doesn't click for me quite as well in this is the character stuff it does work for me but it doesn't work as well as a lot of their other movies and i wonder how much of that has to do with kind of the restructuring and the moving things around and making it less linear which they did to make the first half of the movie you know feel like it had more momentum and that it wasn't just scene after scene after scene of people talking but i like scene after scene after scene of people talking so i wonder what the trade-off would have been with that and it also raises the question of so what the uh, part of what they're going for too is with this cutting back and forth between different things in time even before characters are literally moving through time is obviously this in conjunction with trauma being taken back to different points of your life you know when anthony mackie realizes his is facing his mortality he's cross-cutting between you know different points in his life that they where they move these scenes around for jamie dornan's character it's when he realizes brianna is missing and that's when they kind of shuffle some scenes around from the beginning and shuffle those later in the film so yeah i gotta give it a few more watches and really think on the structure of it which again like i said aaron moorhead and justin benson are way smarter than me so obviously any structural complaints i have it I haven't written a fucking screenplay, but <laughs> all that aside, those are just bits and pieces in terms of figuring out where it falls in their pantheon for me. I really, really dug it. I really, really enjoyed it. And the main thing I was excited about, like Jake touched on, is it being such an assured step forward in a path towards bigger things. They went and said, yep, we can do more effects work, you know, more intricate staging with the camera work. Uh, that's another thing I really want to go back and, and pay attention to is when they do handheld shots and when it's not. Because most of the handheld stuff is in conjunction with Anthony Mackie. But I really want to go well, back. Well, every and, scene in the past is handheld. Yeah. So And there's stuff in the present, too. So I really want to go back and, and, yeah. and really go through with a fine-tooth comb the structure there. 
but yeah, I, I do think it's a terrific film. And if you like their previous stuff, obviously, you, hopefully you will have seen it already because yeah, it's it's great. Definitely. So if if you like their previous stuff, check it out. Yeah, and if you've never heard of them, check it out. It's it would be a very solid introduction to their work. It's just a good movie. Yep, top to bottom. And yeah, I I, I loved it. I clearly liked it a little bit more than you guys. It's one of the very few non-linear structured movies that really really clicks with me. A lot of times that can annoy me because it feels excessive or just pointless. Like say the Stand remake, but uh, I. Look, I was trying to be gentle, but since you brought it up, all right. So, so the actual ending of the the script after the handshake is, you know, they shake hands and it looks like Anthony Mankin's hand is about to coalesce, and then Jamie Dornan wakes up in bed. It was all a dream. I, I don't mean, Jake. I, I don't mean to take something you love away from you, but the but the fact is, in the Everything you just said is a dream sequence. I'm I'm so sorry. Well, then it's their worst movie, hands down. You can't have nice things. What? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> He's actually Bob Newhart. <laughs> oh no! Well, it's Vinnie Curran who wakes up in bed. This is all a dream he had while he's been shackled to the wall in resolution. Man, I just had a fucked up dream. <laughs> well, now that might be different. <laughs> that I might be okay with. <laughs> Back in August, our humble podcast was lucky enough to have one David Lawson Jr. of Rustic Films and Smiling Dave fame on. We had a broad-ranging chat about topics like The Endless, Resolution, She Dies Tomorrow, and Run the Jewels 4. Well, holy calamity, fuck, folks. Dave is back with us today to chat with us about Rustic's latest Synchronic, New Orleans, Doc Rivers leaving the Clippers, and whatever else might come up. We also need to talk about, sorry to interrupt, we also need to talk about Eric's hat and why I don't have one. <laughs> you're gonna, you're gonna. Welcome back. Yeah, since folks don't have video, I have my Sherman's Way poster over my left hand shoulder. <laughs> but on my head is my custom Lawson's Way shirt or hat that I had to answer. I'm just saying, if that shows up as a hat in my mailbox, I'll wear it every day. <laughs> Give me a few weeks. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so the last time we had you on, I remember you basically listened to our last episode in a single sitting. Do you have to repeat the process for this one? So I, I listened to bits of it. Um, I have a newborn now, so it's a little bit harder. But I, I listened. I Basically, I didn't want to listen to the whole thing, but I kind of wanted to get the gist. I listened to the beginning and then I kind of skipped through it as I would a record, ironically. <laughs> <laughs> Just to kind of get a feel back in my days where I used to think that I was a DJ. I was not. <laughs> <laughs> and be like, oh, I want to buy this record. Um, one day my daughter will get a whole bunch of records that are completely useless <laughs> because of that. But no, so I listened to a bunch of it. So thank you for all the kind of things I was chatting with Eric about. I There are a whole bunch of questions that you guys have that I do actually have answers to. Yeah, hey, well, we're just thankful you came back. We really, really couldn't wait to talk to you again. So thank you so much for doing this. Oh, man, it was such a blast last time. I had a great time. I mean, it's... I said it last time and I'll say it again. It's always surreal when anybody wants to talk about, you know, like we do like these little movies that it's like, Hey, look, this is like fun for us. And, and anytime other people are interested in it, it's like, we get really jazzed on that. Well, speaking of, you know, making little movies. So we mentioned a bit in the review that this was obviously a, a bit bigger in scale than the previous ones you'd done with Justin and Aaron. 
So how did this get broached to you as the next movie? Was it indeed the, you know, how do we go about getting Willie Mammoth money was the way it was pitched? Or? <laughs> I mean, look, the idea is always to build up, but the idea, at least for us, has been to build up in a way that's A, sustainable, and B, still feels very grounded and feels very much like the things that interest us in film in general. I don't think you'll ever see us do a movie that we aren't proud to have our name on. That's kind of the stamp of of it for us is like, are we proud to put our name on that film? And so, you know, stepping up in that, it, it's, it gets difficult because as you get more commercial, sometimes films tend to lose a little bit of the, the interest, the, the things that kind of grab you and they become a little bit more generic because obviously they have to reach a wider audience. Mm-hmm. And, and so for us, it's always about like, let's try to reach a wider audience, but also keep those sensibilities that basically we love about film. Mm-hmm. So you had a larger budget for this film. I assume that meant you had fewer hats to wear compared to earlier films. But as we've previously discussed, you're the type of personality that wants to take control of something when you're working on it. What were some of the hardest decisions you had to hand off to others? And if you made them, what would you have done differently? Yeah. So, I mean, yes, we had more money. We didn't have, you guys are right. We didn't have Marvel money. We didn't didn't have like big indie money. You know, obviously we won't talk about exactly what the budget was, but I guarantee you it's less than what you think it was, <laughs> which is always our goal. Is we call it outkicking our coverage. It's like our, our goal is always to like outkick our budget and to make it people be like, you mean that for what? <laughs> Even industry folks, because that's kind of like that's our thing and that's our motto. And we did have to hand over a lot of responsibilities in this. I don't know if there's anything in particular that I was like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. Because we still did stuff kind of our way. We obviously abided by all of, we we were union on this one. So we abided by all the union regulations. But past that, we definitely, uh, the gray areas, we exploited as much as we possibly could. (laughs) (laughs) Which is also why the movie looks as big as it does. It's a hell of a film. Yeah. It's a good looking movie. Yeah, it came off looking great. Thank you. No, we're, we're, we're really proud of it. And, you know, it's, uh, we were, to be filmmakers, you know, Justin there, for them to have actors like Anthony Mackie and Jamie Dornan want to work with them, that's like, that's such a cool, rad thing. Both of them, I, The Fall, I don't know if you guys have seen the show The Fall, but Jamie Dornan is phenomenal in that show. And that was one of those shows where we watched that and we were like, yep, he can do that. And of course, Anthony Mackie has just such a fucking gamut of things yeah. going all the way back to 8 Mile, <laughs> which I was like, oh my God, I, I totally forgot that he was Papa Doc. Oh yeah. Huh. <laughs> when I told my roommate we were doing Synchronic, he went, hey, Clarence! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, it's a private school. Um, Clarence is real nice parents. Did you make any Cranston jokes on set? No, there were no Cranston jokes on set. Um, you know what? Both of them were... were uh, with as huge of movie stars as they are, and, and obviously our set is significantly smaller than almost everything they've ever worked on, they were extremely gracious and very, very giving in both their effort and their time and, you know, wanting this to obviously be good for them as well, which is, a, I think, a testament to the script and the story that Justin and Aaron came up with. Oh, fabulous. I assume Katie Asselton did this one before she dies tomorrow. She did. This is the one where we met her on. Nice. She basically, uh, we used Mark Bennett for casting and she taped uh, with Mark and we fell in love with her. And then, you know, obviously, like if you look back, it's like, 
it's hard to not fall in love with Katie Eslin, like with her, her swatch. Like I was a big fan of the league. Yes. <laughs> and then she came and obviously she has history with the kind of type of movies that we make, given that she's married to Mark Duplass. So it's like, she totally got it. It was wonderful to have her on set. And then uh, when she dies tomorrow was coming around, I saw a role and, and I lobbied hard for it. Cause I was like, Amy, I was like, Katie will kill this role. I was like, I was like, let me just pitch it to her. And I sent Katie the script and she was like, you didn't tell me there was dolphin fucking. fucking. I would have just said yes. <laughs> anyway, sold. I love her. Love her to death. Ali Idenes was another one that, that threw Mark where we were just like in the casting. We were like, that's yep. That's her. Like, you know, so we were, we were very fortunate, even though we, we, scaled up on this one the cast was insanely talented and, and oh yeah again giving and, and, and wonderful with their time and their their talent except for shane brady i assume <laughs> even shane brady who <laughs> <laughs> just happened to be in new orleans at the time we were filming. perfect timing <laughs> i have no idea how he knew we were going to be there <laughs> Well, let's ask you some questions about the movie itself. The biggest one for me <laughs> is completely ridiculous. But what's horse without the E? So, <laughs> they say it with such confidence in the film, and I have never heard this before in my life of playing basketball. The, the idea is that they both know that they're so terrible at this that they'll never get to, they'll never actually get to horse. The, the, the idea is that they're just so bad and they both know it. Okay. That makes sense. And so, like, this is kind of a thing where they're just like, you know, where you're like playing Monopoly at a certain point. You just, you're like, should we just, I call, I win, right? Okay. <laughs> like, this is never going to end. Like, we're clearly going to go into tomorrow if we, if we play all the way to eat. We, we did notice that you kind of shot around them actually shooting the basketball. In the <laughs> I will say they're better at shooting than we made them look. Okay. okay. <laughs> but by the way, who read the original script? Eric, so you know that it was originally supposed to be a boy and he was supposed to be a skateboarder. Yep. So all of that kind of changed as we went like scouting in New Orleans and like what's available and like and then obviously it, you know, it didn't want to make a skateboarding scene where it was just like that's just ridiculous. You know what I mean? And again, it feels like fake and stupid and why did you do that? I was just excited. I thought it was a bone storm connection. <laughs> I yeah, like, hey. I, was, I was gonna say in my head, it just suddenly cuts away, and there's like a two minute clip of just them at the skate park from Bone Storm, <laughs> completely unexplained, just bling. <laughs> Brian actually took Synchronic more than once. The first time it was in Mexico, and he was fighting Baltus <laughs> with exactly. the skateboard. Yeah. Exactly. So I do hear a rumor uh, that you may have gotten a chance to drive the ambulance for this film. I don't know. I don't know where you heard that. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to hear that. I may have commandeered an ambulance and a drone crew <laughs> while Justin and Aaron were shooting inside. Um, like I said, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> things happen. Sometimes I was scouting with the ambulance. <laughs> well, there's no better way to scout than with a drone, so it makes sense. I mean, you get a really clear view of what that shot will look like. <laughs> but I can neither confirm nor deny that uh, all those ambulance shots are me driving. I clearly am mistaken. Understood. I'm just saying, I, I, 
it sounds like something that I would never do. <laughs> <laughs> well, whomever was driving, they seemed to be very professional and ambulance-like. So <laughs> very deft. Yes, <laughs> I hear that it's just flipping a switch, and it's not as complicated as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> again that's what i hear i could be wrong something i wanted to ask kind of circling back to talking about this being a, a slightly higher scale production would be the kind of overt licensing and products in the movie and like we talk frequently about pbr and stuff like that so were you involved in any of that process like getting the licensing specifically i want to know if there was actually a conversation trying to sell casio on the idea that you know, your plastic watches are so good that they will survive multiple temporal transit. <laughs> so we were fortunate, uh, you know, Carhartt was obviously a sponsor because they have, uh, that's the jacket that he's wearing. Okay. Every time he goes back and was, was very nice to give Justin, Aaron and I Carhartt jackets to wear on set. By the way, they have a jacket that will keep you dry in no matter what. It's like, it's, it's literally like designed to be a, uh, this is not supposed to be a Carhartt ad, but it is. Um, it's, it's like designed to be <laughs> a boating jacket. want to sponsor us too. We're, we're down. Carhartt makes nice stuff. I still wear it when it rains in Los Angeles, which is not what it's designed for. It's designed to be like if you're on a whaling boat. <laughs> but no, so our uh, production designer and, and our costume designer were, again, it's easy when you have actors that have a profile like Anthony Mackie and Jamie Dornan to say, hey, we're going to put your people in this outfit. And so uh, everybody jumped on the opportunity and, and was very, again, giving on their resources in terms of jackets and whatnot, especially because for the watches and the jackets and everything, we had to have multiple because they had to be distressed to a certain point. Every time, yeah. suiting them chronologically. So they had to be distressed ahead of time. Mm hmm. You know, like we had for his jacket and his watch for like we had phases of each of those mm -hmm. that were just on a rack because, you know, you can't shoot everything chronologically on something like this. We shouted them out uh, briefly in the episode, but yeah, you did amazing work with the production designer, Ariel Vida and the costume designer. I'm I'm so glad you've been working with them consistently. Yeah, I mean, Ariel Ariel's one of those. I, we literally cannot sing her praises enough like she the amount of times she, she's come up with a solution that has saved our ass or we've gotten to a set that looks better than we imagined it in our heads uh i i literally couldn't tell you the number of times and and laura ortiz is another one we've, we've known her for a really long time and they just they gave everything to the project uh so we we were very fortunate on this one to like a whole bunch of collaborators that we've worked with for a long time. Will Sampson's another one who he operated every shot. Aaron DP'd the movie, but but Will operated literally every shot, and we've worked with him since Spring. He was the Steadicam operator and drone operator on Spring. Oh, nice! And also was the kind of the camera operator on Bone Storm as well. These are people that we've known for a really long time, and it's a team that we are very fortunate that we were able to add a whole bunch of new people to it. But like it, it, at its core, it was a whole bunch of people that we've worked with, you know, forever. The first AD, Ryan Ornstein and I, him and I used to PA together when we were first coming up in this business. That's how long I've known him. Impressive. No, yeah, it's a great group. I, I had one last question on the licensing thing. Like we quickly mentioned in the review, there was the script anecdote where Anthony Mackey's character had the Captain Picard portrait in his bedroom at one point. So was there ever a meeting with... Patrick Stewart about getting the license and he said, I'll do it if you let me play Steve or something. <laughs> no, because that actually has to go through Paramount because mm. it's, it's technically through that. 
And then it would also have to be clear to him. We tried. Um, and then it just became one of those things where it was, uh, what's the intent of the scene? Which is always our goal is like, you know, whatever Justin writes, whatever him and Aaron come up with, it's like, that's what's on the page. But what is the intent? And, and the intent is obviously that Steve is this character who thinks outside the box and thinks outside of kind of this dimension of thinking, if you will. And, and you know, really likes to get into heady uh nightstand physics so are, are steve and mike the noob cousins <laughs> you know we just we just kind of leave that out there don't we <laughs> but but jake aren't we all related that's true aren't we all related in the cosmic sense so and literally in a long enough timeline <laughs> a long enough timeline which is also a short timeline i think he's got you there that's true <laughs> I still need to get around to reading Sapiens because uh, you mentioned it in the commentary oh, and I've heard God. it mentioned. Sapiens, Sapiens is so good. Also, Fabric of the Cosmos. That's the one I believe you guys were talking about that has a miniseries. Yep. Oof. That'll that'll fuck your world up for a whole while. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't order the book, but I bookmarked the mini. So. I listened to it as an audiobook. It is like 30 hours long. And wow. It is- 30 hours of dense material. Just watch <laughs> just watch the miniseries. You'll get the cliff notes. If you want to do a deep dive, Fabric of the Cosmos uh, by Brian Green is one of the most intense reads that I've ever had to do before making a movie. <laughs> it's a pretty diverse set of uh, homework from this film. You got that, you got From Hell. <laughs> that's the thing. I, I, I feel like that's always kind of our goal is like, you know, nothing is ever drawn from one source. It's like, let's, Let's kind of build this idea based on on several theories. It's one of the reasons I every time they send me a script, I get really excited. Or anytime they come up with an idea, I get really excited because I just know that it's going to take several different kind of aspects from a whole bunch of different ideas and kind of blend them together into, into their own kind of ethos. So this was shot in New Orleans. It was. And so it is uh, worth asking, I feel. Would you like to do any shout outs for any bars that uh, were supporting you during your best off hours experiences? <laughs> yes, there are bars that we went to like every um, more often than we should have. <laughs> so the two probably places that we went to the most, uh, the Avenue Pub, which luckily, uh, well, this was back in what 2019 before the pandemic. It didn't close. So it was open 24 hours a day. So it oh, didn't wow. matter what our shooting schedule was. Yep. If we like finished at 4 a.m., we would like go to the Avenue Pub and have a drink. Also, there was a place called Barrel Proof. My God, they just have the best. They have an insane whiskey collection. And then Ooh. they have their food collection. It's a very small little window, very small little kitchen. But God damn, it's good. <laughs> um, so anyway, Barrel Proof, Avenue Pub. If you're in New Orleans and looking for a place to not be sober anymore <laughs> the garden district pub is another one that we hit a lot anybody whose chicken wings can compete with the rustic no okay <laughs> i figured but just checking. next question so can we ask you about another scene in the movie one we actually kind of argued a bit about which is shane's scene mm-hmm. and the elevator and his trip to the desert we were speculating on whether that was the past the future it's kind of got to be the future right <laughs> Here's the thing, and, he, and and this also goes for the Ice Age. That's not really defined. It, it could be either, to be honest with you. And and even in our chats, left it kind of ambiguous mm-hmm. because like the cyclical nature of how a planet kind of evolves 
we very much could end up in either of those situations again. And we found that to be way more interesting than having an answer. That's fair. Though I feel the mammoth is a bit of a signature in that one. <laughs> but maybe not. <laughs> but again, they could come back. Uh, also, by the way, we did do our homework to make sure that that did happen in the past. <laughs> Which was talked about in your in your episode. Yeah, I, I got curious if there are actually mammoths in the U.S. And yeah, oh, yeah. especially in the southern U.S. Yeah, that's really neat. I, I will say this. If we say something with kind of certainty, it's at least been researched as far as like a human, like just amateur person can research it. You know, I, I look... I look to my left and there's a book of the occult <laughs> literally just sitting on the stand right there. <laughs> it's like a 600 page book on the occult. If we can research something, we've researched it. That's not to say that everything's factual. It's just like as much as we can as a human. <laughs> so now that we talked about Synchronic a bit, do you have anything else that you're working on at the moment? Yeah, no, we have, I mean, here's the thing. It's like, it's no big secret. COVID has thrown everything into kind of like this weird holding pattern of sorts. Obviously, stuff is still getting made. Bigger studios are still shooting. Netflix is still shooting. Amazon is still shooting. To do the type of indies that we do, the believe it or not, the profit margin is not as good as you think it is. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's one of those things that like to do it safely costs a lot more. And and so we've kind of put everything on hold until everybody can be vaccinated and it can be done safely, and, and but without extravagant additional costs. Makes sense. But there's a whole bunch of projects that, God, I'm so very much excited for when we come out of this to hit the ground running. You know, it's, it's really nice that we've kind of formulated this backbone of like what Rustic is. And so like people come to us now, like people are reaching out to us in a way that uh, when I read scripts, I'm not tearing out my eyeballs every day. <laughs> You've leveled up, essentially. <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't know if leveling up is the right. Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, we went from like two to three of 97. <laughs> you know i always say it's like yeah we're, we're leveling up but it's like it's not we're not to where we want to be yet which i feel like is a good thing because honestly i don't ever really want to be to where i want to be because i always want to make goals that are slightly beyond my grasp because i think that's that's how one stays motivated mm -hmm. to want more and to do better so one of the things we kind of caught in a interview was a reference to dark song and a series that they'd written about Aleister Crowley that was similar. Is that something that might ever get made, or is that uh, just something that's been put in the trunk? I will say, I, I mean, there's a reason there's in a book about the occult sitting <laughs> on my desk. There's several more in my closet. Aleister Crowley is one of the most fascinating characters that has ever existed. Um, I, I, I literally remember, I think it was Justin who introduced me to Aleister Crowley, he was like, just read his Wikipedia page. And if you just go to Aleister Crowley's Wikipedia page and you're not fascinated and you don't go to a deep dive that ruins your entire productivity for like three days, we're not going to be friends. <laughs> <laughs> because like, it's fascinating. The people that he's connected to and just you, then you get into Alice Huxley. And like, there's just like so much that he touched when it comes to like current pop culture and current sci-fi and just almost like Theories and I mean, you know, you run the gamut on like what he actually kind of influenced in a way. 
uh, when it comes to like modern day, the fact that there hasn't been a a really solid biography about him done is something that we will continue to push for and fight for. Um, but it also has to be done the right way because that's a big subject matter when you're talking about his life and what it spans. And so it's something that, you know, the guys have been playing with for a long time and will continue to until it's no longer a feasible option. So looking back on your acting career, <laughs> you've obviously had a bit of a stint in uh, resolution and the endless. So, uh, who are you looking to play in the Moon Knight series? <laughs> Can we talk about how awesome it is that they get to do Moon Knight? Like, I mean, oh, I... I just, I'm so excited for them. It's something that obviously I, I believe they deserve immensely. I remember when that all came out, I was, I, it's just, I'm so excited for them. I just, how did that come about? I mean, given the type of films that they do, it's been something that's been circling for a while. It's, you know, they've always been kind of mentioned in anything that kind of Marvel is doing. What we do is a very DIY version of interesting kind of, you could see a comic in most of what we do. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think that that like kind of their storytelling lends itself. So it, I think it was an inevitability that eventually they would get to do something like this. I don't think I'm going to be getting to do anything on Moon Knight. Also, I don't want to act ever again. It's not. <laughs> I was going to suggest there, there is a character out there. There's a villain called a uh, smiling tiger, I believe. <laughs> who, <laughs> now, technically it was a new warriors villain, not a Moon Knight villain, but it's still in that MCU catalog. You know, it's just, I, 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 uh, it's not something that I'm passionate about. They love, <laughs> they love acting. Justin and Aaron will like, I think probably forever, if people keep like offering them roles and they'll keep going out for roles, they actually love doing that. And also behind the camera, I personally uh, loathe being in front of the camera because I can't do anything else. Mm. Like I'm a multitasker. And the fact that I have to do just one thing drives me actually insane. <laughs> Respect. <Aww>. Respect. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm a, my brain doesn't work like that. I got things to do. <laughs> Was we got towards the end of our first interview with you, we already asked you what's become our staple question of what's your favorite horror movie. So in lieu of that, have you seen anything in 2020 that terrified you to the same extent as Red, White, and Wasted? Oh, yes. Fuck yes. And I can't believe it took me this long to watch it. Lake Mungo. Oh, yeah. Oh, you wow. So good. That's one of our favorites. It's one of those films that Justin and Aaron have kind of like pinged him on me. It's like, hey, you should watch this. And I'm like, hey, I'll get around to it. I had time. Fuck that. That movie fucked me up in a yes, way. It yeah. was that, yes. <laughs> it made me want to sleep in the dryer that night. <laughs> like, the credits of that movie might be the most effective documentary credits ever in a, in a mockumentary world. And it was just like, I remember, like, I was just watching it and I, I watched it twice because I'm stupid. <laughs> but that movie, I watched I, I watched that while I was like pulling my newborn daughter. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Oh. <laughs> while she was sleeping so that I made sure that she was still breathing. <sighs> this image of you waking her up crying, I love you. <laughs> I, I feel like it's one of those ones like, I hope that our films kind of get talked about in the same way that I feel like Lake Mungo gets talked about where it's like, that's a film that I think a lot of people missed when it came out. And I hope that like our films kind of become that, but man, 
I tweeted about it literally when I watched it. And it, I think it's maybe my my most popular tweet was talking about Lake Mungo and how <laughs> stupid I am for not watching it until. <laughs> you you said the words Lake Mungo and I got instant goose flesh. <laughs> like the, the, the photo. Uh, oh, sorry. Spoiler alert. The photographs that, that, that play oh, yeah. during the final sequence and into the, the credits of that oh, film just oh. mark me to my devastating in a way that like as a filmmaker i get so excited by because i'm like i watched that and i knew what it was yep and still got me yep and to me that to me is like so fucking uh, the fact that i know that he got turned off on hollywood and and the director never wants to work. And I was about to say, I don't remember seeing anything else from that uh, director again, but it's been a while since I looked. I think the story is, at least this is what I've gotten the last couple months, is that he got so turned off on Hollywood, he never wants to do it ever again. He wants to let that exist as his only thing. I respect that. But God damn it, that makes me sad. Because yes. Yeah. Oh. That was just, oh, it crushed me. That really, that literally crushed me. Um, but yeah, I think if you want to talk about like films that I watched over the last six months since we last talked that like rocked me for the first time, that's it. Anything else you've seen you'd recommend? I mean, just things that I've seen a bunch of times. Uh, Almost Famous, you could throw that on every list ever. Yes. Love and Mercy. Love and Mercy is like a weird one that I'm very happy I saw in the theater. If you can get a chance to see Love and Mercy in 5.1, I recommend it. Because the the actual audio editing of that is indicative of how Brian Wilson heard things. And it like it actually works in a way like I remember watching Love and Mercy in the theater and being like, I'm very happy I'm seeing this in the theater. I've seen it. I didn't see it in the theaters, though. Yeah, uh, I rewatched Dead Poet Society because. Oh, uh, so good. That's like peak Robin Williams for me. Like I that to me is uh, one of the greatest performances ever. Um, I rewatched Zodiac, which I loved. Let's see. Some fun ones. Brittany runs a marathon. It's, it's a curveball for you, Nick. Brittany <laughs> runs a marathon. Super fun movie to like watch and get behind. Uh, Late Night was another one that I really enjoyed. Okay. And then I revisited a whole bunch of other ones, like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, oh, The yes. Elephant Man, Force Majeure. Uh, there will be blood. Oh, my hey, God. Okay. Excellent choices. Did you revisit One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest because of the joke in Ted Lasso? <laughs> I, no, I didn't, I didn't. But Ted Lasso is the greatest show that nobody watched. I just finished it last night. Jake has seen it. So good. I've watched it multiple times through. I adore it. Ted Lasso and also Wayne. If you haven't watched Wayne, on, I think it's on Amazon Prime. It started out as a YouTube Red series, but then Amazon bought it. Wayne is phenomenal okay it is the second best show that came out last year next to ted lasso but that's it's not a slight against wayne it's just ted lasso is that fucking good i always say ted lasso isn't the show we deserve it's the show we need (laughs) that show made me feel so good in in ways that i just forgot i could yeah like it, it made me feel happy in in ways that i was like i forgot what happiness was yeah yes I'm just going to throw this out there real quick, too. I'm glad that your answer to what scared you to the level of Red, White, and Wasted was like Mungo and not... No, after I watched Red, White, and Wasted, I've been really getting into mudding. (laughs) I mean, God, like, I mean, Lake Mungo, by the way, that that fucking movie just destroyed me to the point where I was like mad that I hadn't watched it. 
Like, I never watched the movie when it came out and I got mad at myself. Like, it, it was one of those ones where I was just like, just angry <laughs> that I missed it. Yeah, no, I know the feeling. Yeah. So that's what I've watched lately. Also, The Lighthouse, I Heart Huckabees, Death at a Funeral, both of them. Nice. All right. So a little bit off topic. So when last we spoke, you were about to go watch a Clippers playoff game. Uh, didn't go so well, but now we have Doc here. How are you You feeling out in Clippers land about that? Oh, man. So it's tough because, you know, you, you oh, we're going to get deep again. Get ready. <laughs> <laughs> because Paul George talks about uh, what it was like to operate inside a bubble and what it was like in the mental health kind of aspects of that. And obviously you look at athletes and you're like, oh, man, they have everything. They have the money. And then it's like, but they're still uh, mental health is a fun thing. Not a fun thing. It's a funny thing. Where it's like, you can be, have everything that someone else thinks that you should have. But like, if your life isn't what you need it to be, it can still really fuck you up. And I think that, I think that that was what happened along with Doc Rivers' inability to make in-game adjustments. Um, I was happy with their switch to Tyron Lu over the last, uh, obviously we're now what, 20, 30 games in to this season? About 20, 25. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm happy with the product. It's uh, it's also weird. You know, when I look at, I don't know. You, are you guys all Sixers fans? Mostly just me. I enjoy watching it from time to time, but yeah, Jake takes me occasionally. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, but it's weird to watch a team score very easily, and the Clippers seem to do that often. And I watch it, and I'm curious as to how I've never felt like this before. And that comes from also being an Eagles fan. <laughs> uh, for my for my whole life, where I'm just like I'm just not used to things happening so easily. So I've I've really enjoyed watching the new version, and also I I wish nothing but the best for Doc Rivers too, because I think you know he was a phenomenal coach. He just he wasn't the right coach for the team that we had. I the in game adjustment thing is was a big concern going into this season. I I think he's done a, a decent enough job. This year, but I also understand the thing you're saying about the ease of scoring is watching Embiid this year is a different experience when you're used to the Sixers just struggling constantly. Yeah, there's something weird to it where you're just like, but I, you know, in the change of scenery, uh, I'm also again, I'm an Eagles fan, so I I love Andy Reid. Uh, but then I watch what happened this weekend, and I was like, yep, that's Andy Reid for you. But yep. But I really was rooting for him, and I I feel like that that change of scenery did him well as well. And I, I think that, you know, hopefully that happens for Doc Rivers and, and we see the Sixers in the finals. Sixers-Clippers final would be pretty great. I'd like another crack at Kawhi. I'd be for it, especially like most of my like sports friends, because I'm such an Eagles fan, are also Sixers fans, and I'm just not. It'd be a fun way to experience that. How do you feel about Wentz? Whew. Um... <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to ask the hard ones here towards you. No, that's a tough one. Now we're getting into the real shit. Uh, I feel like there was a disconnect, and I don't know if him staying with the Eagles fixes it in a way that it's like Andy Reid. I don't think Andy Reid was a bad coach, but I do not think that Andy Reid would have ever ever succeeded if he had stayed with the Eagles. And I'm not sure that Carson Wentz will either. I'm curious. But also, if if we move on, I, I wish him nothing but the best because, you know, he's done great and, and has always been a wonderful Eagle. You think you guys would ever be interested in making a sports movie? I would be. 
they they don't know what sports are at all. <laughs> I like Invincible to me. Like I cry at. You know what I mean? Like they're like because I feel like that's sports movies that when you get into it, it's like it's like that's like real real triumph. You can like really play with with kind of like the adversity angle on a way that's on a, on a way that's very human that I think that everybody can get behind. So I it's it'll always be something that I'm interested in. I I watch literally almost every sports movie that comes out. I fucking binge them. I love them. All of them are up there. Yeah, I I haven't watched Rudy and not cried ever in my life. And I don't even like Notre Dame. Like I went to Michigan State. So it's like I don't even like Notre Dame and I still watch Rudy and I cry. But I think that like that's the nice thing about sports is that it kind of like allows us to have this in, in the same way the film does it. It allows us to have this commutative feeling towards something. Like we we may not know each other, but we're all for this one thing or we all felt this way, you know, so it's it's bigger than ourselves. I agree. And I, I miss it, you know, being able to go to games. Oh, maybe someday again. The last game I went to, I went to, I went to a, uh, the Eagles Seahawks regular season game last year. It was not fun. Mm-hmm. I was also at the game where Wentz got hurt and Foles came in uh, and beat the Rams. Oh, that's a claim to fame game, I guess. And hey, maybe he'll come back in this trade. Oh my God. I just, <laughs> I love some BDN. <laughs> For those of you that don't know what BDN stands for, look it up. I know what it stands for. It stands for Big Dick Nick. (laughs) (laughs) So big. Also, I love that he wants to be a pastor, and we just refuse to allow him to do that by talking to Big Dick. Eagles fans are like, we appreciate that you'd like to become a pastor when you leave, but you're Big Dick Nick to us. (laughs) (laughs) You just be Father Big Dick Nick. Oh, Father Big Dick Nick would be... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what other questions? What other hard-hitting questions do you guys have? <laughs> <laughs> oh god. Oh. Well, again, thank you so much. We're just gonna be effusive and thanking you again like like we were the first time around. But seriously, thank you so much for coming back. We absolutely love talking to you. And thank you for you know, all the work on Sychronic, a fabulous film. I, I mean I, I, again, that's uh it's this is why we do it. You know, it's it's not always to make a it's not it's not to make a shit ton of money. It's always because like it's something we're passionate about. So uh, happy to jump on and chat with you guys uh, and appreciate your guys' support. The passion shows. You're welcome to come on for when we get to Lake Mungo too. So <laughs> I will happily come on to Lake Mungo. Nice. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, you, you literally book it whenever you want. Just send me a link. I will be there for Lake Mungo. Done. <laughs> it's on the schedule. So we'll let you know. Great. Yeah. Thank you again, Dave. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. And thanks for putting up with our audio issues on our interview with Dave Lawson. Uh, As we mentioned in our interview with Evil Ted Smith, our microphones didn't quite like a setting that we had in place for these last two interviews, but that should be fixed going forward. And big thanks again to Dave Lawson Jr. for coming on the pod. We're always delighted to have him and we're really, really excited to get him back for Lake Mungo. Hopefully we'll get to that in the pretty near future. In the meantime, next month, we've got episode 14, where we're going to be doing a quartet of zombie movies. So this will be hearkening back to our very first episode, where we did all five movies in the Return of the Living Dead franchise. This time, each of the three of us here at the pod picked one movie, and we let Twitter pick the fourth one. So that's going to be coming out next month. But in the meantime, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you soon.
I took issue with this. Of course you did. I did. Of course you did. 